Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 106. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. So hello everyone, how is everyone? Fine and dandy, I do hope. Guess where I am? I'm actually, if you listen to this now, if you listen to this in the kind of the first week, well, I'm in Cyprus. Yes. <laughs> Off there for a week's vacation, a week's holiday with my family. So look, please make it be warm and sunny. So I'm recording this a little few days beforehand, but what a show. Wow. Best-selling writer, Tad Williams, no less, with a great story. I mean, good nearly two hours long story. Something to be just sit back and just get absorbed, get lost in this kind of tale. Fantastic. Give you a little heads up what's coming on. We have a poem by Constance Cooper. We have a short story by Steve Rasnick Tem. Fact article by our good friend, Mr. JJ Campanella. Then we have main fiction from none other than Tad Williams. And as hope you have noticed, this week's art comes from Steve Bohem. So hopefully Steve might be getting your name right now. Steve is the creator, the creator of the Starships over Fridge Magnets. So look out for them as well. I mean, they won't be up there yet, or fingers crossed that they might be. I never know. These time travel shows, I'm not too sure. I'm, just, I'm sucking and seeing. They might be there. I have no idea. But what I, I do know, I will, I'll be, I will be having a very long cool dog drink on a, some beach taverna bar. Oh, there you go. So I hope you enjoy this show. Let's kick off with a little bit of pori. Gingerbread by Constance Cooper. 
with turrets made of ice-cream cones, a roof of neko slate. It forms a winter centerpiece for this small-town bazaar. A frosted castle of a house, the best I could create. First prize again, they say it's my finest work so far. The young ones press up close to stare. They breathe the spice-brown smell. And I the candy-striped arcades, the gumdrops sweetly placed. Their tongue-tips show, their mouths are wet. They crave it, I can tell. As sweaty fingers cross the velvet rope to pinch a taste. But then the watchful mothers pull those tender hands away. Don't touch, it's just to look at, not to eat, they gently scold, and lead their children quickly past the rest of the display. Perhaps that wretched fairy tale still hasn't lost its hold. But on an ill-lit table, in the back part of the hall, the tenth-place house sits all forlorn, ignored by adult eyes. A tilt-walled shack with runny snow, its windows rough and small. But still the sugar beckons them. This year, I have grown wise. Here, little fawn, come steal a bite. Your parents needn't see. What happens next? It all depends upon your point of view. My life is so much richer now I've learned topology. You're just as much inside my house as it's inside of you. And there you'll stay, where eaves are fanged with icy drips of sweet, where red-swirled paving stones lead to a frosting sketch of door. You'll soon grow soft and fat with only gingerbread to eat, till I consume my humble trap down to its luscious core. Gingerbread first appeared in Abyss and Apex, issue number 16. Thank you, Constance, for that. I will put a link on to Constance's site. And Julie Davis, another fine narration. Thank you so much. Next up is a short story by Steve Rasnick Tem. Steve Rasnick Tem has published four novels, three print collections and over 300 short stories in a variety of poetry, plays and non-fiction. He is a past winner of the Bram Stoker Award, the IHG, British Fantasy and World Fantasy Awards. He has also been nominated for the Philip K. Dick Shirley Jackson Awards. Speaking Volumes LLC recently brought out Invisible, an audio collection of recent stories by Steve. Next year, Centipede Press is publishing In Concert, a collection of all his short collaborations with his good wife, Melanie Tem. Today's short story is narrated by Christy Yant, a software quality assurance analyst by day and aspiring speculative fiction writer by night. She lives on the central coast of California with her two amazing daughters. And thoroughly ridiculous cat. So the starship's over and her oral delights is very proud to present. Charles by Steve Rasnick Tem. The night before Charles's wedding, his mother took the long bus ride from her small house in the suburbs to the rundown apartment building downtown where he had been staying for many years. She had never visited him in this place, and although she missed him terribly, she didn't at all look forward to the meeting. Off and on during that day she had such spells of absent-mindedness, misplacing her keys, forgetting why she had gone into this or that room, 
walking out to the clothesline with her blouse all undone, finally losing the worn-out slip of paper with her son's scribbled address. She eventually just had to sit down and have herself a good long cry. She really hadn't thought she'd been sad, and wondered if sadness was really the right word for what she was feeling. Sometimes her body seemed to feel things she herself had no knowledge of. Eventually, she did find the piece of paper with the address, she'd put it in the canister with her tea bags, and she managed to get herself dressed. It was one of the outfits she regularly wore to church, and it bolstered her. But even with these improvements in her condition, she discovered that her hands weren't working properly. They trembled so badly, she dropped her fare by the bus driver, and he had to pick it up for her. And maneuvering her feet down the narrow moving aisle proved difficult, her shoes feeling oversized and full of stones. Her son's building was shabby, but not as bad as she had expected. A sharp odor of urine in the lobby made her clasp a tissue over her nose and mouth. She was relieved to find that the odor did not follow her up the stairs. She stood outside her son's door, sniffing self-consciously, then made herself stop. She rapped the door. It wasn't a very loud knock, but it was the best she could manage. He didn't say anything when he first opened the door and looked down at her. He was wearing the kind of baggy shorts he'd always liked, except much bigger, of course. Man-sized. And a t-shirt. It had always been hard to get him to wear anything but t-shirts. This one had some logo she did not recognize, whose jagged lines and garish colors made her uneasy. When she looked away from it, she found herself following his long, sturdy legs down to the floor, to the huge, dirty gray and almost disintegrated tennis shoes. She stopped there, staring, somewhat sickened by the look of the rotting canvas and rubber, and wondering if the tennis shoes were exaggerated or if his feet were actually that big. Hi, Mom. His voice had a phlegmy sound. She looked up into his expansive face, the tall forehead, the soft, doughy cheeks and chin. The eyes buried inside that face appeared tiny, dark, and feverish. I didn't know you were coming. His oversized head bobbed unsteadily on the thin neck when he talked. I'm sorry, she said, her eyes tearing. I should have come before. His eyes blinked rapidly before focusing. Do you want to come in? Oh, of course, honey. The honey was meant and deliberate and caused her pain. He stood aside awkwardly to let her by. He seemed not to know what to do with his hands, like he didn't know how to invite someone into his apartment. He didn't know how it was done. So he raised them above his head and allowed them to hang and flutter there. Then, before she had a chance to step inside, he asked, "'Are you coming to the wedding?' She stared up at him, feeling very much a small woman. It seemed to her she had always been a small woman alongside her son, even when he was a little boy. She did not say anything for a time, but watched his face intently. "'I will be there,' she said finally, "'because I think that's the right thing for me to do. But you must not get married, Charles. You really mustn't.' He blinked and looked away, and she thought about how raw and sore his tiny eyes appeared. When he was small, he'd get these terrible colds and eye infections, and it just seemed like they would never go away. Mom, my name is Charlie. I want to be called Charlie now. I apologize, Charlie. That's a very nice name, and I will call you that from now on. But, Charlie, you just can't get married. That's something you must not do. I'm old enough. Yes, you are old enough, but that's not the point. She says she loves me, and I told her I love her too. I promised. So did she. Oh, Charlie, I'm so glad someone said that to you. Really, I am. But you can't do something like this. 
We have to now. Everything's all ready. There's a party after, but you can't come if you keep saying things like that. I have to be honest with you, Charlie. I loved you when you were a little boy, and I love you still. I have always loved you, and I will always love you. You will always be my son, forever. But you just can't get married. Why? He said it looking around the room, looking everywhere but at her. She looked down at his feet, wrapped in those terrible tennis shoes. He was rocking back and forth on those two huge feet, lifting one and then the other. You can't marry, honey, because you passed away. You died when you were just six years old. He blinked his eyes a couple of times and then started rubbing them with the swollen mitts of his hands. Soon he was rubbing them so hard she was afraid he might hurt himself, a genuine but ridiculous fear. She thought she knew now why his eyes were so raw, so red, so small. He let his hands flutter up above his head, stretched and yawned deeply with all his body like someone awakening from a long and extraordinarily deep sleep, unable as yet to muster the power of speech. He stared at her, frowning. Finally she looked away, not knowing how to interpret the look in his eyes. "'We never talk about that,' he finally said. "'It's just too silly.' "'Charlie,' she said with a sad smile, "'that's my fault.' At first, well, of course I wanted it that way. I wanted to pretend. The alternative was just unacceptable. But then when I couldn't pretend anymore, I still couldn't talk to you about it. How could I? I suppose I thought if we didn't talk about it, it would, well, take its own course, and that things would evolve as they were intended, in a more natural way, if natural means anything at all in your case. Charles, oh, Charlie, do you understand what I'm trying to say? He looked vague, or bored, or perhaps he was trying to pretend he was bored. "'You think I'm stupid?' His lips contorted in an ugly way. "'A lot of people think I'm stupid, but I'm not.' "'No, of course you're not, honey. It's all my fault, this whole thing. I'm your mother. It was my obligation to help you adjust to this in some way. I just thought that—I always assumed that you did not know you were dead.' He scratched his belly absently. He wasn't skinny. He had a bit of a bulge there, and she wondered how that could be when, as far as she knew, Charles did not eat. And if he was eating now, she did not want to think about what he might be eating. I dream sometimes I'm dead, I think. Or maybe I just remember it. And sometimes when I want to care about something, I can't. It's like some things I think about are just movies, and I'm not in the movie, I'm just watching it. Sometimes I lean on one side when I walk, and I think I'm going to fall over, but I don't, and I always think about that, but I don't want to. It makes me scared and mad. When you were six years old, we were having the downstairs recarpeted. I was in the kitchen, and you had wandered away from me. Her face felt suddenly wet, but she didn't try to wipe away her tears. We had a conversation pit, they called them back then. They were somewhat popular in the 70s. They had put the huge roll of carpet down on the edge of it and gone back to the truck for something or other. We never found out exactly what happened, but when we found you, you were at the bottom of the pit, and the end of the carpet roll on top of you. All through his mother's explanation, Charlie felt around his head, his fingers finally settling into a particular spot three inches above his left ear. I have this place here. Yes, Charlie, that was one of the results of, couldn't you have gotten it fixed? I don't like it at all. My cap never fits right, and my hair grows funny. Charlie, you were dead. There seemed no reason. 
It's not your head, Mom. You don't have to comb your hair over and over again until it looks right. His mouth suddenly seemed like this uncontrollable thing. He turned his head to the mirror just inside the apartment, and she watched as a sneer spread across his face in the glass. He turned back and frowned at her. You should have watched me better. When Ellie and I have kids, you better bet we're going to watch them better than you did me. His mother trembled. I made a mistake, she cried. And I have paid for it every day since then. You have been a constant reminder and a knife in my heart, but I never complained. I never even told you. I have only loved you. He backed up a few steps. It pained her to see. You let me die, he said, his hands held up between them. I'm your mother, Charlie, and I've always loved you. And I know it's sad. It's terribly, terribly sad. But you just can't have children. Just think of what they would be like. Something like that was never meant to be. My own grandchildren. They'd be like me, Mom. Maybe they would look like me. What's so bad about that? She gazed up at him, drying her eyes on the edge of her sleeve. Oh, nothing. Nothing, sweetheart. I'm sorry I got so upset. Do you want some tea? Ellie likes it, so I have a lot of it. You can see my place. That's what Ellie calls it, Charlie's place. That would be very nice, Charlie. Thank you for inviting me. He held the door open for her as if he were a doorman at attention. She stepped inside carefully, watching her feet. Once inside, she sniffed. It was a bad habit. Her son had no smell, virtually none. He never had, but the mind plays tricks, and after he'd died, she'd found herself attributing almost every unknown smell to him. There were also no cooking smells, or smells of garbage, or unwashed clothing, or unwashed body smells, the smells she generally associated with young men. There was a strong aromatic mix of soaps and disinfectants. Her son was no corpse. He was something else. He was his mother's son, and no son of hers could be referred to as a corpse. Charlie's apartment was profoundly neat. The area appeared completely without clutter, the rug well vacuumed, spoiled by not even a thread of lint. Her son's few personal items, if an empty vase, a stapler, and a battered dictionary could be termed personal, equally spaced on a single white plastic shelf mounted on the wall. There were a few toys, some cars, a plastic soldier, a yo-yo, scattered by the bed. While she was looking, he walked over and nudged them under the bed with his foot, I don't play with those, he said. She gazed at the neatly made bed. I have some cookies here, Mom. I used to like cookies. Ellie likes to have a cookie with her tea when she stays over. Would you like a cookie with your tea, Mom? That would be nice. She noticed his politeness and noticed how his politeness pleased her. She went over to the bed, trying not to look at it too directly. On a small table beside the bed was a young woman's photograph. She picked it up gingerly as if it might go off. In her experience, the most innocuous thing sometimes had a tendency to go off, ruining everything. She stared at the image of the creature who chose to stay over with her dear dead son. She didn't like to think of these things, but how could she avoid it? The young woman in the photograph had a shy smile and the saddest eyes she had ever seen. She put the picture down quickly. Here, Mom. Charles walked awkwardly into the room with a cup of steaming tea on a small metal platter along with what appeared to be a spotless plastic ashtray with a single cookie resting inside. He went over to a large chest in front of the single window and sat it down. You can feel the wind when you sit in front of the window. I always like feeling the wind on my face. I don't have any chairs. 
Do you want to sit on the floor? That will be fine. Your floor is very clean. She sat down on the floor by one end of the chest, and he sat down at the other. She started sipping her tea, which had a dry, dusty flavor, but she smiled and nodded at her dead son as she drank. The cookie was stale and hard, but at least the ashtray it sat in appeared quite sanitary. Charles watched her as she consumed these things, occasionally peering out the open window, his eyes fixed and distant. Finally, he said, "'Mommy?' He stopped, closed his mouth, began again. "'Mom, why aren't I—' He closed his mouth again. "'Why aren't you lying in some grave somewhere?' she prompted. He nodded. "'I want to know. Do you know?' She was grateful for an excuse to put down that awful tea, even though her hand was shaking as she returned it to the platter. "'I can't tell you exactly,' she began, "'because I don't exactly know myself.' We had the funeral, and it was very sad. I thought I would die, too, or that at least that was what I deserved. She paused then, looking for some reaction from him. As there was none, she continued. For the next few days I stayed in bed while your father went to work. I knew he was suffering greatly, but I was in no condition to help him. At the end of a week, perhaps two, I really have no idea, I got up and made breakfast. Your father joined me at the table. No words were said. Then, after a few minutes, you walked in. Much slower than normal, as if you had awakened from a hard sleep and sat in your usual chair. She stopped and looked at him. Do you remember any of this? Without pause, he replied, I don't remember. Was Dad surprised? I thought he would have a heart attack. Were you surprised, Mom? No. No, I was not. I think I knew you weren't surprised. She nodded. Were you happy to see me? His mother did not know how to answer that question, and so she said other things she knew to be true. For the first half hour or so, your father cried and hugged you to him and told me how wonderful this was and what a joyful, joyful thing it was that had happened to us that day. A true miracle. You, however, acted as if there was nothing unusual going on. You looked from one of us to the other as if you hadn't the faintest idea what we were talking about. Your father wanted to call your grandparents and all our friends and even neighbors who we didn't even know all that well. Did they all come? I wouldn't let him call anyone. And just as I knew it would happen, over the second half hour or so, your father stared at you and stared at you until he became terrified of the sight of his own son, and he wanted to call the police and the doctors, but most of all he wanted to call our parish priest. But again, I would not let him. And though he said he could not bear it, he agreed to do what I wanted, and he did not make those calls. What happened when our neighbors saw me? The next day I got you up before dawn. I had packed some essential things, including a bag of your toys, even though you appeared uninterested. Suddenly bored with everything you had had before, we left just before daybreak. I left your father a note telling him the city I would be taking you to to start a new life. He was welcome to join us later, I said, but for the time being, I didn't trust him. Did he come? He did. After three months, he got himself together, and one night there he was on our doorstep. But he was never the same. We were never the same. Nothing was ever the same again. That's not your fault. I want you to know that. That's just the way it is sometimes. He couldn't live with the change. And so he died. Charles didn't ask how, as she had known he would not. 
Some things she understood instinctively, but there were so many things she did not understand at all. Charles stood quietly and took the tray with the cup and ashtray into the kitchen. She could hear water running, the sounds of vigorous scrubbing. She looked at the trunk they had been eating on. It was spacious and sturdy. She thought she recognized it as one they used to have at the house. Everything in the room was plainly displayed. There appeared to be no other containers than this. She pushed up the lid. She recognized most of them, the few toys and books he'd owned when he died, and mixed in with these all the toys she had desperately given him after, all the toys for a child who would no longer play. But she thought about the toys shoved under the bed and knew he had been playing, in secret perhaps, but playing just the same. She gently shut the lid, determined not to think of these toys again. Charles returned and stood looking down at her. I'm getting married tomorrow, Mommy. Are you going to be there? Do you remember any of these things I've told you about? He was looking out the window again, distant, as if they were in two separate locations, but he said, I remember riding my tricycle down a long sidewalk, except it was longer than just long. It never stopped. And I was thinking, I can't ride a trike. Mommy says I'm too little. You said I couldn't have one until I was at least five, remember? But there I was in my memory, riding the tricycle better than any boy ever rode a tricycle before, down that brand new sidewalk and by the trees and these great big houses, these huge houses that I'd never seen before. But that's all I remember, Mom. Did I ever go to elementary school? You went to elementary school and junior high and high school. You did all of that. Did I have many friends? No, I'm afraid not. Did I have girlfriends? No, but you did lots of things. You watched television and you took the dog for walks. Remember Corky, that spaniel I got you? And we sat on the porch and I played records for you. So many records. We had so much music in our life. And I told you so many things. I encouraged you. I told you how you would have a great career one day and get married and that you'd have many children of your own. You'd be a wonderful father. You'd make me a grandmother. I... We talked about all of that. Tell me you remember at least some of that. He looked at her with what might have been a smile. It was hard to tell in that soft, doughy face of his in the failing light. All I remember, Mom, he said, is riding that tricycle, and how good I was driving the tricycle, and how good it made me feel. That's all I remember. She looked down at her hands. She'd been picking at her nails. It was a terrible habit. Now her fingers were bleeding. I'm sorry. Don't be sad, Mom, he said, but she didn't think he really meant it or knew how to mean it. I'll have kids. That means you'll have grandkids. You wanted that, didn't you? Isn't that great? And she did smile. She said, That's great, honey. Sometimes we do get what we wish for. And closed her eyes and went to that place where she had not been in many, many years. And when she opened her eyes again, her lovely boy Charles was gone. She sat alone in a dusty, dry box of a room with no furniture, with much of the window boarded, with trash on the floor and the remnants of numerous fires set for warmth or cooking or perhaps just for mischief. The door was off its hinges, lying in the corner, smeared with a variety of dark substances, she had never been in such a place in her lifetime, although she had heard of such places, seen them in movies and on television. One thing she did know about them was that a woman such as herself did not belong there. 
On her slow journey down the stairs, she passed a young woman with dark, sad, so terribly sad eyes. They nodded, but did not speak. Don't forget, copyright is Steve Rasnick Tem. I'll put a link on to Steve's site. Do pop over there. And there will be a link to Christy's site as well. I have some more work by Steve, so do look out for that. Next up, Mr. James Campanella. Science news for October, James. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this October 2009 installment of Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening's diversion, Jim Campanella. After last month, I didn't think any listeners would be writing to me for quite a long time with science questions, so I was a bit surprised when in the last month two more listeners emailed me. They both had questions or observations that were so interesting that I felt I should share them with everybody out there. In addition to answering those questions, I will throw in a couple of bonus stories for you guys tonight, so hold on to your seats and let's get going. I will not identify the first listener by name because I do not want to embarrass them. They emailed me essentially saying that their brother was a big believer in conspiracy theories and that he insists that there is no way that the H1N1 virus, also known as the Mexican swine flu, could exist in nature without the intervention of humans. Let's call the brother Homer, for lack of a better name. Homer says that there is no way that a virus can naturally have chicken, human, and pig DNA in it. Homer's sibling appealed to me to bring the light of reason to his eyes. Um, I'm not sure I can do that, but I can certainly answer the question. First, viruses have been picking up DNA from hosts for millions of years. That's what they do. The worst offenders are the nasty retroviruses, like HIV or herpes. They can do this because retroviruses insert their DNA into the host DNA. That's your chromosomes. They do this to hide from the immune system, and it works great. We have yet to cure any viral disease, let alone a retroviral type. So then at some later date, the virus DNA pops back out again when the virus wants to continue its rampage of terror through your cellular system. Well, when the virus DNA pops out of the host DNA, it very often brings along DNA from the host. That DNA becomes incorporated into the viral DNA and becomes part of the viral genome after that point. Viruses are the ultimate scroungers, and the fact that they pick up DNA from their hosts makes them even harder for the animal immune system to recognize and fight off. Again, this is something that viruses have been doing for a very long time. How do I know this? Well, here's an example I actually use in my genetics classes. 70 years ago or so, it was discovered that certain viruses can cause cancer in animals. The simian sarcoma virus was the first one discovered. It causes monkey tumors. When we finally got the technology in the last 30 years or so to start to sequence DNA, we found that there were certain genes in these viruses which were responsible for inducing tumors. These were called oncogenes, literally cancer genes in Latin. Well, for a while, researchers were thrilled, thinking they had found the source of cancers in animals. They figured the cancer must be caused by a viral infection, at least in animals. At that point in history, they still hadn't found a virus that caused human cancers yet, but here's the crux of the story and the point I am making. A short time later, they discovered those same oncogenes in tumor cell DNA of animals. Researchers hypothesized that the virus infected the animal and inserted the oncogene. But further studies showed that this was wrong. The oncogenes were already there. 
They were all over the genome of the monkeys and other animals, in fact. It turned out that oncogenes were simply good genes in animals that had gone rogue and no longer obeyed growth controls anymore. And here's the key point. The viruses did not bring the oncogene DNA to the host. On the contrary, the oncogene DNA had been picked up over thousands of years of evolution with the host. So the animal DNA had become part of the virus over a very, very long period of time. Okay, that long drawn out point was number one. Here's number two. Now, Homer, think about this. When was the last time you heard about a flu virus coming out of London or Paris or New York or Toronto for that matter? I could keep this up, but do you see where I'm going? New strains of flu virus rarely develop in these so-called first world countries. Why? Well, to put it very simply, because we are no longer close to the land in the first world. I don't mean that there are not farms and farmers, but farmers and farms in the developed world are much more separated from the land. You will not likely see a farmer in Iowa with livestock wandering around his house. Chickens and sheep and goats and pigs and humans are isolated from each other in the first world, especially if they are sick. If a pig gets sick in Iowa, the first thing the farmer does is isolate the pig from the other pigs and animals and bring in the vet. If a pig gets sick in the developing world, it is not unknown for the farmer to bring it into his home and try to care for it. After all, you're talking about a big investment for a poor family. It is common for viruses to jump barriers between species, and usually the likelihood of this barrier jumping depends on how often the one infected species is exposed to a second. The more often it's exposed, the more likely the jumping from species to species is to happen. This is why that barrier jumping seldom occurs in developing countries. We keep our animals separated, especially when they're sick. That separation does not occur again in the third world. Now, given all that info that I've just gone on about, imagine this scenario. A Mexican farmer has a pig infected by a flu virus. He brings it into his house to care for it. In his home are also chickens. The virus infects the chickens. The virus already has DNA from the pig incorporated into it for the last hundred years of pig infections. Now, the virus just needs to jump to the human, which isn't that hard since it was already a mammalian virus. By the time the virus has gone through a whole series of human hosts in Mexico and the U.S., and it's finally sequenced, it's pretty likely it will have picked up human DNA into its genome. Virologists have seen this so often, they even have a name for it. They call it a triple reassortment strain. Heck, there are even some researchers who are suggesting that the double reassortment strains with bird and pig DNA have already been around for years, so that it was just a simple recent jump into humans that brought us to our present state. Now, if we apply Occam's razor to this problem, we can decide what is more likely. Occam's razor, as you may remember, is the scientific principle which suggests that you always use the simplest explanations for an observation before you start making complicated ones. Is it more likely that this was a natural phenomenon along the lines that virologists have seen for years, or that it was cooked up in a lab somewhere? Let me put it to you this way. If it was cooked up in a lab somewhere using genetic engineering, it's a pretty crappy virus. The death rate in developing countries has been pretty low, not really that much higher than any flu from the last few years. So if this was purposely engineered, the mad scientists weren't very good at their trade. They certainly could have made it more deadly to life and limb. Homer, I leave it up to you to decide. You may want to read Introduction to Modern Virology by Nigel Dimmick. 
You can pick it up cheap on Amazon. It's a great basic introduction to how viruses interact with their hosts. Or there's a great article in the New England Journal of Medicine from June of this year that describes the genetic analysis of H1N1 and its possible sources. The article was written by the whole H1N1 virus investigation team, and that is 30 or 40 researchers. And if they don't know what they're talking about, nobody does. In addition to that, an article in the New England Journal of Medicine from July of this year, 2009, from the lab of Vladimir Trifonov at Columbia University actually tracks all the other strains going back to the early 1990s that H1N1 is related to. So seriously, this virus did not just come out of thin air. The second question of the night comes from Jesse Willis, whom some of you may know as being the moderator of the fantastic science fiction and fantasy audio website. Jesse emailed me and wanted to know if I had ever discussed plastics on this show and the serious threat they pose to the world. No, he was not talking about those little microplastic bits that are floating in the ocean and creating havoc there as pollutants though that is a very serious issue. He's referring to the problem with bisphenol A-type plastic, usually just called BPA. For the last several years, BPA has been suspected of being an endocrine disruptive agent. That means it has the ability to mimic endocrine hormones and act like them, specifically estrogen. It has been proposed by several scientists around the world, including Dr. Eva Bonefeld-Jorgensen of the University of Aarhus, in Denmark, that BPA has become a serious pollutant across the entire world. It may be one of the causes of worldwide sperm counts dropping in men over the last 30 to 40 years. It may also be a reason that pre-adolescent girls are physically maturing more quickly than they have in the last 30 or 40 years. Readers of Popular Science may even remember in an article from several months ago that there are researchers who suggest that BPA may be responsible for weight gain in the developed world. BPA is everywhere, unfortunately. Plastic water bottles, milk bottles, baby bottles, microwave containers. And it does have a real effect. And for once, the worry wards may have it right. There are more than 125 studies funded by government agents, such as the National Institute of Health, documenting that BPA has a wide range of effects, including structural and neurochemical changes throughout the brain, associated with behavioral changes such as hyperactivity, learning deficits, increased aggression, and increased likelihood of drug dependency. Of course, there are also abnormalities in sperm production in males and oocytes in females, disruption of hormone production and fertility in both males and females, immune disorders, increased growth rate, and early secondary sexual maturation. Does that sound safe? I don't think so. You would think there would be an outcry, and there has been, but really not enough of one. Even the U.S. FDA is not to be trusted on this. Approximately 7 billion pounds of BPA are produced annually, with more than 2 billion pounds produced in the U.S. Worldwide, BPA generates an estimated $1 million a day in revenue for corporations such as Bayer, Dow Chemical, General Electric, and Sunoco. In May of 2008, the FDA released a report indicating that currently marketed foods containing BPA are safe, and the exposure to BPA from foods, including exposure for infants and children, are less than the levels that may cause health effects. Okay, that sounds reasonable, but there was a bit of a problem with this. The report sparked concern among scientists and consumers regarding conflict of interest, not disclosed by FDA's BPA subcommittee chair, Martin Filbert. 
This following a $15 million grant from Dow Chemical for the University of Michigan Risk Science Center, which Dr. Filbert founded and co-directs. Oh yeah, that says a lot about the safety of BPA. Embarrassing to those of us from the States, a six-month Canadian review of 150 research studies resulted in findings contradictory to the FDA. The Canadian Health Minister announced that there is concern for newborns and infants. And Canada is the first country to declare BPA a health hazard and to take steps to ban it from products. A number of retailers have stopped using BPA products. Walmart and Toys R Us are no longer stocking baby bottles and other products that contain BPA. In April 2008, Nalgene, a maker of hard plastic sports water bottles, began phasing out production of its outdoor line of polycarbonate containers that include BPA. Playtex also announced in April 2008 that it will produce products that are BPA-free and products can now be identified by a BPA-free icon listed on their products. Both Dow and Playtex have downplayed any risk with BPA, but cited the reason for the BPA-free products was due to consumer response. So where does this leave us? I'm not sure. I know there are a number of state-sponsored bills across the United States that are trying to ban BPA plastics. The public is just beginning to realize that BPA is bad and just how bad it is. Sure, BPA plastic in contact with food is bad, but what happens after the BPA plastic is discarded? Well, that's the other half of the equation that is seldom mentioned. BPA leaching is a serious concern. Because of leaching, not only is BPA present in plastic and metal products, it's also present in the air and in drinking and other water sources. BPA leaches from the soil into fresh water, and because of plastic and metal waste disposal, it's a major contaminant in landfills. By the way, the recycle code for BPA-containing plastics is 3 and 7. You may want to avoid those. Not to be a predictor of doom and gloom, but the human race will be facing a serious problem in the next 50 years. United Nations experts in demography and population genetics in a recent report are predicting that by 2050, the human race will hit a maximum population of about 9 billion, which, by the way, is well below the theoretical carrying capacity of the Earth of about 11 billion. After that, the numbers of humans on this planet will begin to drop. This is partly due to social pressures to keep population down, but also trends in human fertility that are, to say the least, alarming. The Malthusian model suggested that the human population would just keep increasing and increasing until a crisis point. Well, it appears that Malthus and Harry Harrison and Isaac Asimov were all wrong. If we're not careful, we may end up with the horrible scenario presented in P.D. James's apocalyptic novel, Children of Men. In his story, the earth has become scourged by infertility and an aging adult population. This is already happening in places in Europe and Asia. Japan is actually paying couples to have extra babies. It's predicted that by 2050, Japan's aging native population will fall to levels not seen since the 1500s. Japan is so terrified they have even created a new government ministry to reverse this decline. The problem is already affecting several European countries, including Germany, which is closing hundreds of grade schools a year, and even Russia, which is paying couples $9,000 per child because they are so worried. The only reason that the U.S. has not felt any of these problems is our progressive immigration policy. Our population here grows because we are constantly getting new and sometimes 
more fertile citizens from the developing world. However, if you look at the Native American population, it has been falling for decades, and the impact has already been felt economically. Even the Hawaiian Native population has been affected. There are only about 15,000 pure-blood Native Hawaiians left in the world. For those of you who scoff and say China will continue to have billions of people just by itself, let me remind you that the communist government policies there limit children severely to just one per couple. China is winning its anti-population struggle, but at what cost? I have wandered a bit on my point, but where am I going with this? It's this. BPA is not helping our downward population spiral. All that we can hope as a species is that BPA is the only chemical fertility threat on the horizon, and that no others emerge very soon, or we all may be in very serious trouble. The next story of the night is a seriously strange one. The brain is an amazing thing, and we take it for granted sometimes that what we consider reality actually is real and that what we are seeing is actually there. This is the entire basis of stage magic. It works because we have programmed expectations about how the world works. What happens when brain damage leads to an alteration in your worldview? I know this sounds like the proposal of some horrid television show on ABC, a la the hopefully now canceled Eli Stone, but I am talking about something real and documented here. And this cleanly falls into the Oliver Sacks territory. Dr. Burkhard Kasper of the University of Erlangen in Germany and his associates report in the August 2009 Journal of Epilepsy and Behavior about the first instance of a brain seizure making someone believe that they have undergone a sex transformation. Kasper reported a 37-year-old woman admitted to an epilepsy center in Germany for seizures in 2006. She described having nausea, fear, and sometimes deja vu several times a week, even more bizarre, she reported occasionally also perceiving the following delusion. Quote, I sometimes no longer feel I am female. I have the impression I have transformed into a male. My voice, for example, sounds like a male voice at that moment. One time, when I looked down at my arms during an episode, they looked like male arms, including male hair growth. Unquote. Okay, so you're thinking, oh my gosh, how bizarre. Let's go one step further. Her illusions were not limited to herself. She also saw nearby women as becoming men too. Quote, One time, another woman, a friend of mine, was in the same room. I perceived her as becoming a male, including the changing of the sound of her voice. Unquote. Prior to her delusions, the woman was completely healthy, with no history of other mental disorders. According to Casper, she never experienced a similar phenomenon outside of the seizures. Eventually, anticonvulsive drugs relieved her of the delusions and most of her other symptoms. So why did she have these delusions? Well, MRI scans revealed a benign tumor in the woman's brain that was apparently linked with the seizures. The tumor is located in the right amygdala, with irregular activity seen in the surrounding right temporal lobe. The amygdala near the center of the brain, seems to play an important role in processing human identity, including aspects like familiarity, emotional state, and sex. And past studies revealed that electrical stimulation of the temporal lobe triggered doubt about sexual identity. Probably the most important conclusion of the study is that there are now brain circuits that are directly linked with perception of gender. 
Casper is now working on MRI tests to determine how well a person can distinguish gender to both analyze this patient and potentially others. This may be particularly useful in better understanding both men and women with gender dysphoria in which they perceive themselves as the opposite gender of their physical body. Okay, last story of the night. And it involves, yes, ants again. I may change the title of my sofa spot here to the Ant News Update if I continue this trend. I'm not sure anybody will like that, but I certainly find it interesting. I'm kidding. As we've discussed about previously, ants see the world in a rainbow array of scents. The scents of their nest, their nest mates, both live and dead, and tempting food. It was assumed for a long time that when an ant follows a plume of scent to a tasty snack, it was following a smell that it learned to associate with the food's odor. It turns out that ants apparently can learn to associate a smell with a food simply because they like the smell, and not necessarily because it has been associated with food. Dr. Yale Proveco and Roxana Yosens from the Universidad de Buenos Aires, Argentina, reported this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology on a study that examines whether ants can learn to recognize food flavors picked up when sipping from a nestmate's mouth and then follow the flavor's smell or odor in search of more of the same. Provenco and Yosens tested their theory by seeing whether an ant could follow an odor in a maze after tasting the scent in sucrose supplied by a foraging nestmate. Having marked an ant that would feed from a full forager, the team paired the hungry ant with a forager. Then they released the forager into an area supplied with tea tree-flavored sucrose solution. They followed the forager to fill up on the tea tree-flavored sucrose and return it to its nestmate so that the hungry ant could take a sip of sucrose from the forager's mouth. Then they asked the just-fed ant to choose between a tea tree-scented channel and a chemical channel with rose smell in it that the ant had not previously encountered in a Y-shaped maze. The ant successfully chose the tea tree scent, and when the team repeated the test with other pairs of ants and different scent combinations, the insects that sipped flavored sugar were always able to follow the flavor's scent. So rather than simply following the tempting odors to tasty treats, ants can learn to recognize scents associated with food that have been brought to the nest, allowing new foragers to follow the scrumptious scent and forage for more. Well, that was quite a bit, and that's all from me for now. As always, take care, stay away from BPA plastics, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, Jim. What a star. Thank you very much. So, main fiction, and like I say, it's none other than Tad Williams, or Robert Paul Tad Williams. He is the author of several fantasy and science fiction novels, including Tale Chaser's Song, Memory, Sorrow and Thorn series, the Outland series, and The War of the Flowers. Now, the Memory, Sorrow and Thorn, you know what I mean? That's when I just got absorbed in them stories when I was a young, a young pup. Tad Williams is currently writing Shadow March series. The first volume, which was published in 2004. The second volume, Shadow Play, was published in March 2007. The third volume, currently work titled Shadow Rise, is currently being written, and there is actually a fourth and fifth volume to finish off the series. In July 2006, Tad Williams started publishing a new six-series comic miniseries called The Next through DC Comics. A second series for DC Comics called The Factory is currently in the planned stages.
And he's also a very busy man. He's also currently working on a series of young adult books, co-written with his good wife, Deborah Beale, called Ordinary Form. The first volume, The Dragons of Ordinary Form, was published in June 2009. A second book, A Witch of Ordinary Form, is expected in 2010, and there's three more in that series. This actual story by Tad Williams is in a great anthology at the moment called By Blood We Live, by our none other than John Joseph Adams. So please do check out that, I'll put a link on to By Blood We Live. This story is just narrated at just a tremendous level. It's an amazing narration. It is by Peter Caval. He's a writer, voice actor and musician. His recent works include a play called Happily Ever After, produced in Boston in May 2009 at the 1111 Theatre, an original musical called Death, and he's got an ever-expanding army of short stories, performance, poems, audio dramas, sound art creations. Peter lives in Toronto. If you want more work by Peter, please pop over to his blog, petercaval.com. Again, links to everything in the show will be on the front of the website. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. Child of an Ancient City by Tad Williams Read by Peter Cavell Oh, merciful Allah! I am as a calf fatted for slaughter. Masrur Aladan roared with laughter and crashed his goblet down on the polished wood table once, twice, thrice. A trail of crescent-shaped dents followed his hand. I can scarce move for gorging. The fire was banked and shadows walked the walls. Masrur's table, for he was master here, stood scatter-spread with the bones of small fowl. Masrur leaned forward and squinted across the table. A calf, he said, fatted. He belched absently and wiped his mouth with a wine-stained sleeve. Ibn Fahad broke off a thin, cold smile. We have indeed wreaked massacre on the race of pigeons, old friend. His slim hand swept across the littered tabletop. We have also put the elite guard of your wine cellars to flight. And, as usual, I thank you for your hospitality. But do you not sometimes wonder if there is more to life than growing fat in the service of the caliph? Ha! Masrur goggled his eyes. Doing the caliph's bidding has made me wealthy. I have made myself fat. He smiled. The other guests laughed and whispered. Abu Jamir, a fatter man in an equally stained robe, toppled a small tower erected from the bones of squab. The night is young, good Masrur, he cried. Have someone fetch up more wine and let us hear some stories. Baba, Masrur bellowed. Come here, you old dog. Within three breaths, an old servant stood in the doorway, looking to his sportive master with apprehension. Bring us the rest of the wine, Baba, or have you drunk it all? Baba pulled at his grizzled chin. Ah, ah, but you drank it, master. You and Master Ibn Fahad took the last four jars with you when you went to shoot arrows at the weathercock. Just as I suspected. Masrur nodded. Well, get on across the bazaar to Abu Jamir's place. Wake up his manservant and bring back several jugs. The good Jamir says we must have it now. Baba disappeared. The chagrined Abu Jamir was cheerfully backthumped by the other guests. A story, a story, someone shouted. A tale. 
Oh, yes, a tale of your travels, Master Mazrur. This was young Hassan, sinfully drunk. No one minded. His eyes were bright, and he was full of innocent stupidity. Someone said you have traveled to the green lands of the north. The north! Mazrur grumbled, waving his hand as though confronted with something unclean. No, lad, no. That I cannot give to you. His face clouded, and he slumped back on his cushions. His tarbushed head swayed. Ibn Fahad knew Mazrur like he knew his horses. Indeed, Mazrur was the only human that could claim so much of Ibn Fahad's attention. He had seen his old comrade drink twice this quantity, and still dance like a dervish on the walls of Baghdad, but he thought he could guess the reason for this sudden incapacity. Oh, Mazrur, please! Hassan had not given up. He was as unshakable as a young falcon with its first prey beneath its talons. Tell us of the north. Tell us of the infidels. A good Muslim should not show such interest in unbelievers, Abu Jamir sniffed piously, shaking the last drops from a wine jug. If Mazrur does not wish to tell a tale, let him be. Ha! snorted the host, recovering somewhat. You only seek to stall me, Jamir, so that my throat shall not be so dry when your wine arrives. No, I have no fear of speaking of unbelievers. Allah would not have given them a place in the world for their own if they had not some use. Rather, it is certain other things that happened which make me hesitate. He gazed kindly on young Hassan, who in the depths of his drunkenness looked about to cry. Do not despair, Egling. Perhaps it would do me good to unfold this story. I have kept the details long inside. He emptied the dregs of another jar into his cup. I still feel it strongly, though. Bitter, bitter times. Why don't you tell the story, my good friend? He said over his shoulder to Ibn Fahad. You played as much a part as did I. No, Ibn Fahad replied. Drunken puppy Hassan emitted a strangled cry of despair. But why, old comrade? Mazrur asked, pivoting his bulk to stare in amazement. Did the experience so chill even your heart? Ibn Fahad glowered. Because I know better. As soon as I start, you will interrupt, adding details here, magnifying there, then saying, No, no, I cannot speak of it. Continue, old friend. Before I have taken another breath, you will interrupt me again. You know you will wind up doing all the talking, Mazrur. Why do you not start from the beginning and save me my breath? All laughed, but Mazrur, who had put on a look of wounded solicitousness. Of course, old friend, he murmured. I had no idea that you harbored such grievances. Of course I shall tell the tale. A broad wink was offered to the table. No sacrifice is too great for a friendship such as ours. Poke up the fire, will you, Baba? Ah, he's gone. Hassan, will you be so kind? When the youth was again seated, Mazrur took a swallow, stroked his beard, and began. In those days, Mazrur said, I myself was but a lowly soldier in the service of Harun al-Rashid. May Allah grant him health. I was young, strong, a man who loved wine more than he should, but what soldier does not, and a good deal more trim and comely than you see me today. My troop received a commission to accompany a caravan going north, bound for the land of the Armenites beyond the Caucasian mountains. A certain prince of that people had sent a great store of gifts as tribute to the caliph, inviting him to open a route for trade between his principality and our caliphate. 
Harun al-Rashid, wisest of wise men that he is, did not exactly make the camels groan beneath the weight of the gifts that he sent in return. But he sent several courtiers, including the under-vizier Walid al-Salameh, to speak for him, and to assure this Armenite prince that rich rewards would follow when the route over the Caucasians was opened for good. We left Baghdad in grand style, pennants flying, the shields of the soldiers flashing like golden dinars, and the caliph's gifts bundled onto the backs of a gang of evil contrary donkeys. We followed the banks of the faithful Tigris, resting several days at Mosul, then continued through the eastern edge of Anatolia. Already as we mounted northward the land was beginning to change, the clear sands giving way to rocky hills and scrub. The weather was colder, and the skies gray, as though Allah's face was turned away from that country, but the men were not unhappy to be out from under the desert sun. Our pace was good. There was not a hint of danger, except the occasional wolf howling at night beyond the circles of the campfires. Before two months had passed we had reached the foothills of the Caucasians, what is called the steppe country. For those of you who have not strayed far from our Baghdad, I should tell you that the northern lands are like nothing you have seen. The trees there grow so close together, you could not throw a stone five paces without striking one. The land itself seems always dark. The trees mask the sun before the afternoon is properly finished, and the ground is damp. But, in truth, the novelty of it fades quickly, and before long it seems the smell of decay is always with you. We caravaneers had been over eight weeks a-traveling, and the bite of homesickness was strong, but we contented ourselves with the thought of the accommodations that would be ours when we reached the palace of the prince, laden, as we were, with our caliph's good wishes, and the tangible proof thereof. We had just crossed the high mountain passes and begun our journey down when disaster struck. We were encamped one night in a box canyon, a thousand steep feet below the summit of the tall Caucasian peaks. The fires were not too much but glowing coals, and nearly all the camp was asleep except for two men standing sentry. I was wrapped in my bedroll, dreaming of how I would spend my earnings, when a terrible shriek awakened me. Sitting groggily upright, I was promptly knocked down by some bulky thing tumbling onto me. A moment's horrified examination showed that it was one of the sentries, throat pierced with an arrow, eyes bulging with his final surprise. Suddenly there was a chorus of howls from the hillside above. All I could think of was wolves, that the wolves were coming down on us. In my witless state I could make no sense of the arrow at all. Even as the others sprang up around me, the camp was suddenly filled with leaping, whooping shadows. Another arrow hissed past my face in the darkness, and then something crashed against my bare head, filling the nighttime with a great splash of light that illuminated nothing. I fell back, insensible. I could not tell how long I had journeyed in that deeper darkness when I was finally roused by a sharp boot prodding at my ribcage. I looked up at a tall, cruel figure, cast by the cloud-curtained morning sun in bold silhouette. As my sight became accustomed, I saw a knife-thin face, dark-browed and fierce, with mustachios long as a tartar herdsman's. I felt sure that whoever had struck me had returned to finish the job, and I struggled weakly to pull my dagger from my sash. 
This terrifying figure merely lifted one of his pointy boots and trod delicately on my wrist, saying in perfect Arabic, "'Wonders of Allah, this is the dirtiest man I have ever seen!' It was Ibn Fahad, of course. The caravan had been of good size, and he had been riding with the Armanite and the under-vizier, not back with the hoi polloi, so we had never spoken. Now you see how we first truly met— me on my back, covered with mud, blood, and spit, and Ibn Fahad standing over me like a rich man examining carrots in the bazaar. Infamy! Ibn Fahad had been blessed with what I would later come to know as his usual luck, when the bandits, who must have been following us for some days, came down upon us in the night, Ibn Fahad had been voiding his bladder some way down slope. Running back at the sound of the first cries, he had sent more than a few mountain bandits down to hell courtesy of his swift sword, but there were too many. He pulled together a small group of survivors from the main party, and they fought their way free, then fled along the mountain in the darkness, listening to the screams echoing behind them, cursing their small numbers and ignorance of the country. Coming back in the light of day to scavenge for supplies as well as ascertain the nature of our attackers, Ibn Fahad had found me, a fact he has never allowed me to forget, and for which I have never allowed him to evade responsibility. While my wounds and bandit spites were doctored, Ibn Fahad introduced me to the few survivors of our once great caravan. One was Susri al-Din, a cheerful lad, fresh-faced and smooth-cheeked as young Hassan here dressed in the robes of a rich merchant's son. The soldiers who had survived rather liked him, and called him Fawn, to tease him for his wide-eyed good looks. There was a skinny wretch of a chief clerk named Abdallah, purse-mouthed and iron-eyed, and an indecently plump young mullah, who had just left the madrasa and was getting a rather rude introduction to life outside the seminary. Ruad, the mullah, looked as though he would prefer to be drinking and laughing with the soldiers. Besides myself and Ibn Fahad, there were four or five more of these. While Abdallah, the prim-faced clerk, looked as though he should be the one who never lifted his head out of the Quran. Well, in a way that was true, since for a man like Abdallah, the balance book is the holy book. May Allah forgive such blasphemy. There was one other, notable for the extreme richness of his robes, the extreme whiteness of his beard, and the vast weight of his personal jewelry. Walid al-Salameh the under-vizier to his eminence the caliph Harun al-Rashid. Walid was the most important man of the whole party. He was also, surprisingly, not a bad fellow at all. So there we found ourselves, the rack of the caliph's embassy, with no hope but to try and find our way back home through a strange, hostile land. The upper reaches of the Caucasians are a cold and godless place. The fog is thick and wet. It crawls in of the morning, leaves briefly at the time the sun is high, then comes creeping back long after sunset. We had been sodden as well-diggers from the moment we had stepped into the foothills. A treacherous place, those mountains. Home of bear and wolf, covered in forests so thick that in places the sun was lost completely. Since we had no guide, indeed it was several days before we saw any sign of inhabitants whatsoever, we wandered unsteered, losing half as much ground as we gained for walking in circles. At last we were forced to admit our need for a trained local eye, 
In the middle slopes, the trees grew so thick that fixing our direction was impossible for hours at a time. We were divining the location of Mecca by general discussion, and, blasphemy again, we probably spent as much time praying toward Aleppo as to Mecca. It seemed a choice between possible discovery and certain doom. We came down by night and took a young man out of an isolated shepherd's hovel, as quietly as ex-brigands like ourselves, or at least many of us, Ibn Fahad, my apologies, could. The family did not wake, the dog did not bark. We were two leagues away before sunrise, I'm sure. I felt sorry, in a way, for the young peasant lout we'd kidnapped. He was a nice fellow, although fearfully stupid. I wonder if we are now an old, dull story by which he bores his children. In any case, once this young rustic, whose name, as far as I could tell, was unpronounceable by civilized tongues, realized that we were not ghosts or jinni, and we were not going to kill him on the spot, he calmed down and was quite useful. We began to make real progress, reaching the peak of the nearest ridge in two days. There was a slight feeling of celebration in the air that night, our first in days under the open skies. The soldiers cursed the lack of strong drink, but spirits were good nonetheless. Even Ibn Fahad pried loose a smile. As the under-vizier Walid told a humorous story, I looked about the camp. There were but two grim faces, the clerk Abdallah, which was to be expected since he seemed a patently sour old devil, and the stolen peasant boy. I walked over to him. "'Oh, young one,' I said, "'why do you look so downcast? Have you not realized that we are good-hearted, God-fearing men, and will not harm you?' He did not even raise his chin, which rested on his knees, shepherd-style, but he turned his eyes up to mine. "'It is not those things,' he said, in his awkward Arabic. "'It is not you soldiers, but this place.' Gloomy mountains they are indeed, I agreed. But you have lived here all your young life. Why should it bother you? Not this place. We never come here. It is unholy. The vampire walks these peaks. Vampire? said I. And what peasant devil is that? He would say no more. I left him to his brooding and walked back to the fire. The men all had a good laugh over the vampire, making jesting guesses as to what type of beast it might be. But Ruad, the young mullah, waved his hands urgently. I have heard of such afrits, he said. They are not to be laughed at by such a godless lot as yourselves. He said this as a sort of scolding joke, but he wore a strange look on his round face. We listened with interest as he continued. The vampire is a restless spirit. It is neither alive nor dead, and Shaitan possesses its soul utterly. It sleeps in a sepulchre by day, and when the moon rises it goes out to feed upon travelers, to drink their blood. Some of the men again laughed loudly, but this time it rang false as a brass merchant's smile. I have heard of these from one of our foreign visitors, said the under-vizier Walid quietly. He told me of a plague of these vampire in a village near Smyrna. All the inhabitants fled, and the village is still uninhabited today. This reminded someone else, myself perhaps, of a tale about an afrit with teeth growing on both sides of his head. Others followed with their own demon stories. The talk went on late into the night, and no one left the campfire until it had completely burned out.
By noon the next day we had left the heights and were passing back down into the dark, tree-blanketed ravines. When we stopped that night we were once more hidden from the stars, out of sight of Allah and the sky. I remember waking in the foredawn hours. My beard was wet with dew, and I was damnably tangled up in my cloak. A great dark shape stood over me. I must confess to making a bit of a squawking noise. It's me, the shape hissed. It was Rafak, one of the other soldiers. You gave me a turn. Rafak chuckled. Thought I was that vampire, eh? Sorry, just stepping out for a piss. He stepped over me, and I heard him trampling the underbrush. I slipped back into sleep. The sun was just barely over the horizon when I was again awakened, this time by Ibn Fahad tugging at my arm. I grumbled for him to leave me alone, but he had a grip on me like an alms beggar. Rifak is gone, he said. Wake up. Have you seen him? He walked on me in the middle of the night on his way to go moisten a tree, I said. He probably fell in the darkness and hid his head on something. Have you looked? Several times, Ibn Fahad responded. All around the camp. No sign of him. Did he say anything to you? Nothing interesting. Perhaps he has met the sister of our shepherd boy and is making the two-backed beast. Ibn Fahad made a sour face at my crudity. Perhaps not. Perhaps he has met some other beast. Don't worry, I said. If he hasn't fallen down somewhere close by, he'll be back. But he did not come back. When the rest of the men arose, we had another long search with no result. At noon we decided, reluctantly, to go on our way, hoping that if he had strayed somewhere he would catch up with us. We hiked down into the valley, going farther and farther into the trees. There was no sign of Rifak, although from time to time we stopped and shouted in case he was searching for us. We felt there was small risk of discovery, for that dark valley was as empty as a pauper's purse. But nevertheless, after a while, the sound of our own voices echoing back through the damp glades became unpleasant. We continued on in silence. Twilight comes early in the bosom of the mountains. By mid-afternoon it was already becoming dark. Young Fawn, the name had stuck against the youth's protests, who of all of us was the most disturbed by the disappearance of Rifak, stopped the company suddenly, shouting, Look there! We straightaway turned to see where he was pointing, but the thick trees and shadows revealed nothing. I saw a shape, the young one said. It was just a short way back, following us. Perhaps it is the missing soldier. Naturally, the men ran back to look, but though we scoured the bushes, we could find no trace of anyone. We decided that the failing light had played Fawn a trick, that he had seen a hind or some such. Two other times he called out that he saw a shape. The last time one of the other soldiers glimpsed it too, a dark, man-like form, moving rapidly beneath the trees a bowshot away. Close inspection still yielded no evidence, and as the group trod wearily back to the path again, Walid the under-vizier turned to Fawn with a hard, flat look. Perhaps it would be better, young master, if you talked no more of shadow shapes. But I saw it, the boy cried. The soldier Mohammed saw it too. I have no doubt of that, answered Walid al-Salameh. But think on this. We have gone several times to see what it might be, and have found no sign of any living man. 
Perhaps Arifak is dead. Perhaps he fell into a stream and drowned, or hit his head upon a rock. His spirit may be following us, because it does not wish to stay in this unfamiliar place. That does not mean we want to go and find it. But, the other began, Enough! spat the chief clerk Abdullah. You heard the undervizier, young prankster. We shall have no more talk of your godless spirits. You will straightway leave off telling such things. Your concern is appreciated, Abdullah, Walid said coldly. But I do not require your help in this matter. The vizier strode away. I was almost glad the clerk had added his voice, because such ideas would not keep the journey in good order. But like the under-vizier, I, too, had been rubbed and graded by the clerk's high-handedness. I am sure others felt the same, for no more was said on the subject all evening. Allah, though, always has the last word, and who are we to try to understand his ways? We bedded down a very quiet camp that night, the idea of poor Rifak's lost soul hanging unspoken in the air. From a thin, unpleasant sleep, I woke to find the camp in chaos. It's Mohammed, the soldier, Fawn was crying. He's been killed. He's dead. It was true. The Mullah Ruad, first up in the morning, had found the man's blanket empty, then found his body a few short yards out of the clearing. His throat has been slashed out, said Ibn Fahad. It looked like a wild beast had been at him. The ground beneath was dark with blood, and his eyes were wide open. Above the cursing of the soldiers and the murmured holy words of the mullah, who looked quite green of face, I heard another sound. The young shepherd lad, grimly silent all the day before, was rocking back and forth on the ground by the remains of the cook-fire, moaning. Vampire, he wept. Vampire, the vampire. All the companions were, of course, completely unmanned by these events. While we buried Mohammed in a hastily dug grave, those assembled darted glances over their shoulders into the forest vegetation. Even Ruad, as he spoke the words of the Holy Quran, had trouble keeping his eyes down. Ibn Fahad and I agreed between ourselves to maintain that Mohammed had fallen prey to a wolf or some other beast but our travellers found it hard even to pretend agreement. Only the under-vizier Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage... Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And clerk Abdallah seemed to have their wits fully about them, and Abdallah made no secret of his contempt for the others. We set out again at once. Our company was somber that day, and no wonder. No one wished to speak of the obvious, nor did they have much stomach for talk of lighter things. It was a silent file of men that moved through the mountain fastness. As the shadows of evening began to roll down, the dark shape was with us again, flitting along just in sight, disappearing for a while only to return, bobbing along behind us like a jackdaw. My skin was crawling, as you may well believe, though I tried to hide it. We set camp, building a large fire and moving near to it, and had a sullen, close-cramped supper. Ibn Fahad, Abdallah, the under-vizier, and I were still speaking of the follower only as some beast. Abdallah may even have believed it, not from ordinary foolishness, but because he was the type of man who was unwilling to believe there might be anything he himself could not compass. As we took turns standing guard, the young mullah led the far-from-sleepy men in prayer. The voices rose up with the smoke, neither seeming to be of much substance against the wind of these old, cold mountains. I sidled over to the shepherd lad. He'd become, if anything, more close-mouthed since the discovery of the morning. This vampire you spoke of, I said quietly, what do your people do to protect themselves from it? He looked up at me with a sad smile. Lock the doors. I stared across at the other men, young fawn with clenched mouth and furrowed brow. The mullah ruad, eyes closed, plump cheeks awash with sweat as he prayed. Abin Fahad gazing coolly outward, ever outward. And then I returned the boy's sad smile. No doors to lock, no windows to bar, I said. What else? There is an herb we hang about our houses, he said, and fumbled for the word in our unfamiliar language. After a moment he gave up. It does not matter. We have none. None grows here. I leaned forward, putting my face next to his face. For the love of God, boy, what else? I knew it was not a beast of the earth. I knew I had seen that fluttering shadow. Well, he mumbled, turning his face away, they say, some men do, that you can tell stories. What? I thought he had gone mad. This is what my grandfather says. The vampire will stop to hear the story you tell, if it is a good one, and if you continue it until daylight he must return to the place of the dead. There was a sudden shriek. I leapt to my feet, fumbling for my knife. But it was only Ruad, who had put his foot against a hot coal. I sank down again, heart hammering. 
Stories? I asked. I have only heard so, he said, struggling for the right phrases. We try to keep them farther away than that. They must come close to hear a man talking. Later, after the fire had gone down, we placed sentries and went to our blankets. I lay a long while thinking of what the Armonite boy had said before I slept. A hideous screeching sound woke me. It was not yet dawn, and this time no one had burned himself on a glowing ember. One of the two soldiers who had been standing picket lay on the forest floor, blood gouting from a great wound on the side of his head. In the torchlight, it looked as though his skull had been smashed with a heavy cudgel. The other sentry was gone, but there was a terrible thrashing in the underbrush beyond the camp, and screams that would have sounded like an animal in a cruel trap, but for the half-formed words that bubbled up from time to time. We crouched, huddled, staring like startled rabbits. The screaming began to die away. Suddenly Ruad started up, heavy and clumsy getting to his feet. I saw tears in his eyes. We... We must not leave our fellow to suffer so, he cried, and looked around at all of us. I don't think anyone could hold his eye except the clerk Abdallah. I could not. Be silent, fool, the clerk said, heedless of blasphemy. It is a wild beast. It is for those cowardly soldiers to attend to, not a man of God. The young mullah stared at him for a moment, and a change came over his face. The tears were still wet on his cheeks, but I saw his jaw firm and his shoulders square. No, he said, we cannot leave him to Shaitan's servant. If you will not go to him, I will. He rolled up the scroll he had been nervously fingering and kissed it. A shaft of moonlight played across the gold letters. I tried to grab his arm as he went past me, but he shook me off with surprising strength, then moved toward the brush, where the screeching had died down to a low, broken moaning. Come back, you idiot! Abdallah shrieked at him. This is foolishness! Come back! The young holy man looked over his shoulder, darting a look at Abdallah I could not easily describe, then turned around and continued forward, holding the parchment scroll before him as if it were a candle against the dark night. There is no God but Allah, I heard him cry, and Muhammad is his prophet. Then he was gone. After a long moment of silence, there came the sound of the holy words of the Koran, chanted in an unsteady voice. We could hear the mullah making his ungraceful way out through the thicket. I was not the only one who held his breath. Next there was crashing and branches snapping as though some huge beast was leaping through the brush. The mullah's chanting became a howl. Men cursed helplessly. Before the cry had faded, though, another scream came, numbingly loud, the rage of a powerful animal, full of shock and surprise. It had words in it, although not in any tongue I had ever heard before, or since. Another great thrashing, and then nothing but silence. We lit another fire, and sat sleepless until dawn. In the morning, despite my urgings, the company went to look for trace of the sentry and the young priest. They found them both. It made a grim picture, let me tell you, my friends. They hung upside down from the branches of a great tree. Their necks were torn, and they were as white as chalk. All the blood had been drawn from them. We dragged the two stone-cold husks back to the camp circle, and shortly thereafter buried them commonly with the other sentry, 
who had not survived his head wound. One curious thing there was. On the ground beneath the hanging head of the young priest lay the remains of the holy scroll. It was scorched to black ash and crumbled at my touch. So it was a cry of pain we heard, said Ibn Fahad over my shoulder. The devil-beast can be hurt, it appears. Hurt, but not made to give over, I observed, and no other holy writings remain, nor any hand so holy to wield them or mouth to speak them. I looked pointedly over at Abdallah, who was giving unwanted instructions to the two remaining soldiers on how to spade the funeral dirt. I half hoped one of them would take it on himself to brain the old meddler. True, grunted Ibn Fahad. Well, I have my doubts on how cold steel will fare also. As do I. But it could be that there is yet a way we may save ourselves. The shepherd boy told me of it. I will explain when we stop at midday. I will be waiting eagerly, said Ibn Fahad, favoring me with his half-smile. I am glad to see someone else who is thinking and planning beside myself. But perhaps you should tell us your plan on the march. Our daylight hours are becoming precious as blood now. As a matter of fact, I think from now on we shall have to do without burial services. Well, there we were, in a very nasty fix. As we walked, I explained my plan to the group. They listened silently downcast, like men condemned to death, not an unreasonable attitude in all truth. Now here's the thing, I told them. If this young lout's idea of tale-telling will work, we shall have to spend our nights yarning away. We may have to begin taking stops for sleeping in the daylight. Every moment walking, then, is precious. We must keep the pace up, or we will die in these damned haunted mountains." Also, while you walk, think of stories. From what the lad says, we may have another ten days or a fortnight to go until we escape this country. We shall soon run out of things to tell about, unless you dig deep into your memories. There was grumbling, but it was too dispirited a group to offer much protest. Be silent, unless you have a better idea, said Ibn Fahad. Masrur is quite correct— although, if what I suspect is true, it may be the first time in his life he finds himself in that position. He threw me a wicked grin, and one of the soldiers snickered. It was a good sound to hear. We had a short midday rest. Most of us got at least an hour's sleep on the rocky ground, and then we walked on until the beginning of twilight. We were in the bottom of a long, thickly forested ravine where we promptly built a large fire to keep away some of the darkness of the valley floor. Ah, but fire is a good friend. Gathered around the blaze, the men cooked strips of venison on the ends of green sticks. We passed the water skin and wished it was more, not for the first time. Now then, I said, I'll go first, for at home I was the one called upon most often to tell tales, and I have a good fund of them. Some of you may sleep, but not all. There should always be two or three awake, in case the teller falters or forgets. We cannot know if this will keep the creature at bay, but we should take no chances. So I began, telling first the story of the four clever brothers. It was early, and no one was ready to sleep. All listened attentively as I spun it out, adding details here, stretching a description there. When it ended I was applauded, and straightway began telling the story of the carpet merchant Salim and his unfaithful wife. 
That was perhaps not a good choice. It is a story about a vengeful jinn and about death, but I went on nonetheless, finished it, and then told two more. As I was finishing the fourth story about a brave orphan who finds a cave of jewels, I glimpsed a strange thing. The fire was beginning to die down, and as I looked out over the flames I saw movement in the forest. The under-vizier Walid was directly across from me, and beyond his once splendid robes a dark shape lurked. It came no closer than the edge of the trees, staying just out of the fire's flickering light. I lost my voice for a moment then and stuttered, but quickly caught up the thread and finished. No one had noticed, I was sure. I asked for the water-skin and motioned for Walid al-Salama to continue. He took up with the tale of the rivalry between two wealthy houses in his native Isfahan. One or two of the others wrapped themselves tightly in their cloaks and lay down, staring up as they listened, watching the sparks rise into the darkness. I pulled my hood down low on my brow to shield my gaze, and squinted out past Walid's shoulder. The dark shape had moved a little nearer now to the lapping glow of the campfire. It was man-shaped, that I could see fairly well, though it clung close to the trunk of a tree at clearing's edge. Its face was in darkness, two ember-red eyes unblinkingly reflected the firelight. It seemed clothed in rags, but that could have been a trick of the shadows. Huddled in the darkness a stone threw away, it was listening. I turned my head slowly across the circle. Most eyes were on the under-vizier. Fawn had curtained his in sleep, but Ibn Fahad, too, was staring out into the darkness. I suppose he felt my gaze, for he turned to me and nodded slightly. He had seen it, too. We went on until dawn, the men taking turns sleeping as one of the others told stories, mostly tales they had heard as children, occasionally of an adventure that had befallen them. Ibn Fahad and I said nothing of the dark shape that watched. Somewhere in the hour before dawn, it disappeared. It was a sleepy group that took to the trail that day, but we had all lived through the night. This alone put the men in better spirits, and we covered much ground. That night we again sat around the fire. I told the story of the gazelle king, and the enchanted peacock, and the little man with no name, each of them longer and more complicated than the one before. Everyone except the clerk Abdallah contributed something. Abdallah and the shepherd boy, that is. The chief clerk said repeatedly that he had never wasted his time on foolishness such as learning stories. We were understandably reluctant to press our self-preservation into such unwilling hands. The Armanite boy, our guide, sat quietly all the evening and listened to the men yarning away in a tongue that was not his own. When the moon had risen through the treetops, the shadow returned and stood silently outside the clearing. I saw the peasant lad look up. He saw it, I know, but like Ibn Fahad and I, he held his silence. The next day brought us two catastrophes. As we were striking camp in the morning, happily no fewer than when we had set down the night before, the local lad took the water-skins down to the river that threaded the bottom of the ravine. When a long hour had passed and he had not returned, we went fearfully down to look for him. He was gone. All but one of the water-skins lay on the stream-bank. He had filled them first. The men were panicky. The vampire has taken him, they cried. What does that foul creature need with a water-skin? pointed out Al-Salama. He's right, 
I said. No, I'm afraid our young friend has merely jumped ship, so to speak. I suppose he thinks his chances of getting back are better if he is alone. I wondered, I still wonder, if he made it back. He was not a bad fellow. Witness the fact that he took only one water bag and left us the rest. Thus we found ourselves once more without a guide. Fortunately, I had discussed with him the general direction, and he had told Ibn Fahad and myself of the larger landmarks, but it was nevertheless with sunken hearts that we proceeded. Later that day, in the early afternoon, the second blow fell. We were coming up out of the valley, climbing diagonally along the steep side of the ravine. The damned Caucasian fogs had slimed the rocks and turned the ground soggy. The footing was treacherous. Ahmed, the older of the remaining pikemen, had been walking poorly all day. He had bad joints anyway, he said, and the cold nights had been making them worse. We had stopped to rest on an outcropping of rock that jutted from the valley wall, and Ahmed, the last in line, was just catching up to us when he slipped. He fell heavily onto his side and slid several feet down the muddy slope. Ibn Fahad jumped up to look for a rope, but before he could get one from the bottom of his pack, the other soldier, named Bekir, if memory serves, clambered down the grade to help his comrade. He got a grip on Ahmed's tunic, and was just turning around to catch Ibn Fahad's rope when the leg of the older man buckled beneath him, and he fell backward. Bekir, caught off his balance, pitched back as well, his hand caught in the neck of Ahmed's tunic, and the two of them rolled end over end down the slope. Before anyone could so much as cry out, they had both disappeared over the edge, like a wine jug rolling off a tabletop. Just that sudden. To fall such a distance certainly killed them. We could not find the bodies, of course. Could not even climb back down the ravine to look. Ibn Fahad's remark about burials had taken on a terrible, ironic truth. We could but press on. Now a party of five. Myself... Ibn Fahad, the under-vizier Walid, Abdallah the clerk, and young Fawn. I doubt that there was a single one of our number who did not wonder which of us would next meet death in that lonesome place. Ah, by Allah most high, I have never been so sick of the sound of my own voice as I was by the time nine more nights had passed. Ibn Fahad, I know, would say that I have never understood how sick everyone becomes of the sound of my voice. Am I correct, old friend? But I was tired of it, tired of talking all night, tired of racking my brain for stories, tired of listening to the cracked voices of Walid and Ibn Fahad, tired to sickness of the damp, gray, oppressive mountains. All were now aware of the haunting shade that stood outside our fire at night, waiting and listening. Young Fawn, in particular, could hardly hold up his turn at tale-telling, so much did his voice tremble. Abdallah grew steadily colder and colder, congealing like rendered fat. The thing which followed was no respecter of his cynicism or his mathematics, and would not be banished for all the scorn he could muster. The skinny chief clerk did not turn out to us, though, to support the story circle, but sat silently and walked apart. Despite our terrible mutual danger, he avoided our company as much as possible. The tenth night after the loss of Ahmed and Bakir, we were running out of tales. We had been ground down by our circumstances, and were ourselves become nearly as shadowy as that which we feared. 
Walid al-Salama was droning on about some ancient bit of minor intrigue in the court of the Emperor Darius of Persia. Ibn Fahad leaned toward me, lowering his voice so that neither Abdallah or Fawn, whose expression was one of complete and hopeless despair, could hear. Did you notice, he whispered, that our guest has made no appearance tonight? It has not escaped me, I said. I hardly think it a good sign, however. If our talk no longer interests the creature, how long can it be until its thoughts return to our other uses? I fear you are right, he responded, and gave a scratchy, painful chuckle. There's a good three or four more days walking, and hard walking at that, until we reach the bottom of these mountains and come once more onto the plain, at which point we might hope the devil-beast would leave us. Ibn Fahad... I said, shaking my head as I looked across at Fawn's drawn, pale face. I fear we shall not manage. As if to point up the truth of my fears, Walid here stopped his speech, coughing violently. I gave him to drink of the water-skin, but when he had finished he did not begin anew. He only sat looking darkly, as one lost, out to the forest. Good vizier, I asked, can you continue? He said nothing, and I quickly spoke in his place, trying to pick up the threads of a tale I had not been attending to. Walid leaned back, exhausted and breathing raggedly. Abdallah clucked his tongue in disgust. If I had not been fearfully occupied, I would have struck the clerk. Just as I was beginning to find my way, inventing a continuation of the vizier's Darian political meanderings, there came a shock that passed through all of us like a cold wind— and a new shadow appeared at the edge of the clearing. The vampire had joined us. Walid moaned and sat up, huddling by the fire. I faltered for a moment but went on. The candle-flame eyes regarded us unblinkingly, and the shadow shook for a moment, as if folding great wings. Suddenly Fawn leapt to his feet, swaying unsteadily. I lost the strands of the story completely and stared up at him in amazement. Creature! He screamed, Hellspawn! Why do you torment us in this way? Why, why, why? Ibn Fahad reached up to pull him down, but the young man danced away like a shying horse. His mouth hung open, and his eyes were starting from their dark-rimmed sockets. You great beast! He continued to shriek. Why do you toy with us? Why do you not just kill me? Kill us all! Set us free from this terrible, terrible... And with that, he walked forward, away from the fire, toward the thing that crouched at the forest's edge. "'End this now!' Fawn shouted, and fell to his knees only a few strides from the smoldering red eyes, sobbing like a child. "'Stupid boy! Get back!' I cried. Before I could get up to pull him back, and I would have, I swear by Allah's name, there was a great rushing noise, and the black shape was gone, the lamps of its stare extinguished.' Then, as we pulled the shuddering youth back to the campfire, something rustled in the trees. On the opposite side of the campfire, one of the near branches suddenly bobbed beneath the weight of a strange new fruit, a black fruit with red-lit eyes. It made an awful croaking noise. In our shock, it was a few moments before we realized that the deep, rasping sound was speech, and the words were Arabic. It was you it said, who chose to play the game this way. 
almost strangest of all, I would swear that this thing had never spoken our language before, never even heard it, until we had wandered lost into the mountains. Something of its halting inflections, its strange hesitations, made me guess it had learned our speech from listening all those nights to our campfire stories. "'Demon!' shrilled Abdallah. "'What manner of creature are you?' "'You know very well what kind of thing I am, man. "'You may none of you know how or why.' But by now you know what I am. Why, why do you torment us so? shouted Fawn, writhing in Ibn Fahad's strong grasp. Why does the serpent kill a rabbit? The serpent does not hate. It kills to live, as do I. As do you. Abdallah lurched forward a step. We do not slaughter our fellow men like this, devil spawn. Clerk. The black shape hissed and dropped down from the tree. Close your foolish mouth. You push me too far. It bobbed as if agitated. The curse of human ways. Even now you provoke me more than you should, you huffing insect. Enough! The vampire seemed to leap forward, and with a great rattling of leaves he scuttled along the limb of a tall tree. I was fumbling for my sword, but before I could find it the creature spoke again from his high perch. The young one asked why I toy with you. I do not. If I do not kill, I will suffer more than I suffer already. Despite what this clerk says, though, I am not a creature without, without feelings as men have them. Less and less do I wish to destroy you. For the first time in a great age, I have listened to the sound of human voices that were not screams of fear. I have approached a circle of men without the barking of dogs, and have listened to them talk. It has almost been like being a man again. And this is how you show your pleasure? The under-vizier Walid asked, teeth chattering. By Killing us? I am what I am, said the beast. But for all that, you have inspired a certain desire for companionship. It puts me in mind of things that I can barely remember. I propose that we make a bargain, a wager. I had found my sword, and Abin Fahad had drawn his as well, but we both knew that we could not kill a thing like this, a red-eyed demon that could leap five cubits in the air and had learned to speak our language in a fortnight. No one bargains with Shaitan, spat the clerk Abdallah. What do you mean? I demanded, inwardly marveling that such an unlikely dialogue should ever take place on the earth. Pay no attention to the... I curled my lip. Holy man! Abdallah shot me a venomous glance. Hear me, then, the creature said, and in the deep recesses of the tree seemed once more to unfold and stretch great wings. 
Hear me. I must kill to live, and my nature is such that I cannot choose to die. That is the way of things. I offer you now, however, the chance to win safe passage out of my domain, these hills. We shall have a contest, a wager, if you like. If you best me, you shall go freely, and I shall turn once more to the musty, slow-blooded peasants of the local valleys. Ibn Fahad laughed bitterly. What, are we to fight you then? So be it. I would snap your spine like a dry branch, croaked the black shape. No, you have held me these many nights telling stories. It is storytelling that will win you safe passage. We will have a contest, one that will suit my whims. We shall relate the saddest of all stories. That is my demand. You may tell three. I will tell only one. If you can best me with any or all, you shall go unhindered by me. And if we lose, I cried, and who shall judge? You may judge, it said, and the deep, thick voice took on a tone of grim amusement. If you can look into my eyes and tell me that you have bested my sad tale, why, then I shall believe you. If you lose, then one of your number shall come to me and pay the price of your defeat. Those are my terms. Otherwise I shall hunt you down one at a time. For in truth, your present tale-telling has begun to lose my interest. Ibn Fahad darted a worried look in my direction. Faun and the other stared at the demon shape in mute terror and astonishment. We shall... we shall give you our decision at sunset tomorrow, I said. We must be allowed to think and talk. As you wish, said the vampire. But if you accept my challenge, the game must begin then. After all, we have only a few more days to spend together. And at this the terrible creature laughed, a sound like the bark being pulled from the trunk of a rotted tree. Then the shadow was gone. In the end we had to accede to the creature's wager, of course. We knew he was not wrong in his assessment of us. We were just wagging our beards over the nightly campfire, no longer even listening to our own tales. Whatever magic had held the vampire at bay had drained out like meal from a torn sack. I racked my poor brains all afternoon for stories of sadness, but could think of nothing that seemed to fit, that seemed significant enough for the vital purpose at hand. I had been doing most of the talking for several nights running, and had exhausted virtually every story I had ever heard, and I was never much good at making them up, as Ibn Fahad will attest. Yes, go ahead and smile, old comrade. Actually, it was Ibn Fahad who volunteered the first tale. I asked him what it was, but he would not tell me. Let me save what potency it may have, he said. The under-vizier Walid also had something he deemed suitable. I was racking my brain fruitlessly for a third time when young Fawn piped up that he would tell a tale himself. I looked him over, rosy-cheeked and long-lashed eyes, and asked him what he could possibly know of sadness. Even as I spoke, I realized my cruelty, standing as we all did in the shadow of death or worse, but it was too late to take it back. Fawn did not flinch. 
He was folding his cloak as he sat cross-ankled on the ground, folding and unfolding it. He looked up and said, I shall tell a sad story about love. All the saddest stories are about love. These young shave-tails, I thought, although I was not ten years his senior. A sad story about love. But I could not think of better, and was forced to give in. We walked as fast and far as we could manage that day, as if hoping that somehow, against all reason, we should find ourselves out of the gloomy, mist-sodden hills. But when twilight came, the vast bulk of the mountains still hung above us. We made camp on the porch of a great standing rock, as though protection at our backs would avail us of something if the night went badly. The fire had only just taken hold, and the sun had dipped below the rim of the hills a moment before, when a cold wind made the branches of the trees whip back and forth. We knew, without speaking, without looking at one another, that the creature had come. "'Have you made your decision?' The harsh voice from the trees sounded strange, as if its owner was trying to speak lightly, carelessly. But I only heard death in those cold syllables. We have, said Ibn Fahad, drawing himself up out of his involuntary half-crouch to stand erect. We will accept your wager. Do you wish to begin? Oh, no, the thing said, and made a flapping noise. That would take all the suspense from the contest, would it not? No, I insist that you begin. I am first, then, Ibn Fahad said, looking around our circle for confirmation. The dark shape moved abruptly toward us. Before we could scatter, the vampire stopped a few short steps away. Do not fear, it grated. Close to one's ear, the voice was even odder and more strained. I have come nearer to hear the story and see the teller, for surely that is part of any tale, but I shall move no farther. Begin. Everybody but myself stared into the fire, hugging their knees, keeping their eyes averted from the bundle of darkness that sat at our shoulders. I had the fire between myself and the creature, and felt safer than if I had sat like Walid and Abdallah, with nothing between the beast and my back but cold ground. The vampire sat hunched, as if imitating our posture. Its eyes hooded so that only a flicker of scarlet light, like a half-buried brand, showed through the slit. It was black, this man-like thing. Not black as a negro, mind you, but black as burnt steel, black as the mouth of a cave. It bore the aspect of someone dead of the plague. Rags wrapped it, moldering, filthy bits of cloth, rotten as old bread. But the curve of its back spoke of terrible life. A great black cricket, poised to jump. Many years ago, Ibn Fahd began, I traveled for a good time in Egypt. I was indigent then, and journeyed wherever the prospect of payment for a sword arm beckoned. I found myself at last in the household guard of a rich merchant in Alexandria. I was happy enough there, and I enjoyed walking in the busy streets, so unlike the village in which I was born. One summer evening I found myself walking down an unfamiliar street. It emptied out into a little square that sat below the front of an old mosque. The square was full of people, merchants and fishwives, a juggler or two, but most of the crowd was drawn up to the façade of the mosque, pressed in close together. At first, 
As I strolled across the square, I thought prayers were about to begin, but it was still some time until sunset. I wondered if perhaps some notable imam was speaking from the mosque steps, but as I approached I could see that all the assembly were staring upward, craning their necks back as if the sun itself, on its way to its western mooring, had become snagged on one of the minarets. But instead of the sun, what stood on the onion-shaped dome was the silhouette of a man, who seemed to be staring out toward the horizon. "'Who is that?' I asked a man near me. "'It is Harud al-Emwiya, the Sufi,' the man told me, never lowering his eyes from the tower above. "'Is he caught up there?' I demanded. "'Will he not fall?' "'Watch,' was all the man said. I did. A moment later, much to my horror, the small dark figure of Ha'arud the Sufi seemed to go rigid, then toppled from the minaret's rim like a stone. I gasped in shock, and so did a few others around me, but the rest of the crowd only stood in hushed attention. Then an incredible thing happened. The tumbling holy man spread his arms out from his shoulders, like a bird's wing, and his downward fall became a swooping glide. He bottomed out high above the crowd, then sped upward, riding the wind like a leaf, spinning, somersaulting, stopping at last to drift to the ground as gently as a bit of eiderdown. Meanwhile, all the assembly was chanting, God is great! God is great! When the Sufi had touched the earth with his bare feet, the people surrounded him, touching his rough woolen garments and crying out his name. He said nothing only stood and smiled, and before too long the people began to wander away, talking amongst themselves. "'But this is truly marvelous,' I said to the man who stood by me. "'Before every holy day he flies,' the man said, and shrugged. "'I am surprised this is the first time you have heard of Ha'arud al-Emwiya.' I was determined to speak to this amazing man, and as the crowd dispersed I approached and asked if I might buy him a glass of tea. Close up he had a look of seemed roguishness, that seemed surprising placed against the great favor in which Allah must have held him. He smilingly agreed, and accompanied me to a tea-shop close by, in the street of weavers. How is it, if you will pardon my foolishness, that you of all holy men are so gifted? He looked up from the tea cupped in his palms and grinned. He had only two teeth. Balance, he said. I was surprised. A cat has balance, I responded, but they nevertheless must wait for the pigeons to land. I refer to a different sort of balance, he said, the balance between Allah and Shaitan, which, as you know, Allah the All-Knowing has created as an equilibrium of exquisite delicacy. Explain, please, master. I called for wine, but Ha'arud refused any himself. In all things care must be exercised, he explained. Thus it is too with my flying. Many men holier than I are as earth-bound as stones. Many other men have lived so poorly as to shame the devil himself, yet they cannot take to the air either. Only I, if I may be excused what sounds self-satisfied, have discovered perfect balance. Thus, each year before the holy days I taught up my score carefully, committing small peccadilloes or acts of faith as needed until the balance is exactly, exactly balanced. Thus, when I jump from the mosque, neither Allah nor the arch-enemy has claim on my soul, and they bear me up until a later date, at which time the issue shall be clearer. He smiled again and drained his tea. You are a sort of 
chessboard on which God and the devil contend? I asked, perplexed. A flying chessboard, yes. We talked for a long while, as the shadows grew long across the street of the weavers, but the Sufi Ha'arud adhered stubbornly to his explanation. I must have seemed disbelieving, for he finally proposed that we ascend to the top of the mosque so he could demonstrate. I was more than a little drunk, and he, imbibing only tea, was filled nonetheless with a strange gleefulness. We made our way up the many winding stairs, and climbed out onto the narrow ledge that circled the minaret like a crown. The cool night air, and the thousands of winking lights of Alexandria far below, sobered me rapidly. I suddenly find all your precepts very sound, I said. Let us go down. But Harud would have none of it, and proceeded to step lightly off the edge of the dome. He hovered, like a bumblebee, a hundred feet above the dusty street. Balance, he said, with great satisfaction. But, I asked, is the good deed of giving me this demonstration enough to offset the pride with which you exhibit your skill? I was cold and wanted to get down, and hoped to shorten the exhibition. Instead, hearing my question, Ha'arud screwed up his face as though it was something he had not given thought to. A moment later, with a shriek of surprise, he plummeted down out of my sight to smash on the mosque's stone steps, as dead as dead. Ibn Fahad, having lost himself in remembering the story, poked at the campfire. Thus, the problems with matters of delicate balance, he said, and shook his head. The whispering rustle of our dark visitor brought us sharply back. Interesting, the creature rasped. Sad, yes. Sad enough? We shall see. Who is the next of your number? A cold chill, like fever, swept over me at those calm words. I, I am next, said Fawn, voice taut as a bowstring. Shall I begin? The vampire said nothing, only bobbed the black lump of his head. The youth cleared his throat and began. There was once, Fawn began and hesitated, then started again. There was once a young prince named Zufik, the second son of a great sultan. Seeing no prospects for himself in his father's kingdom, he went out into the world to search for his fortune. He traveled through many lands and saw many strange things, and heard tell of others stranger still. In one place he was told of a nearby sultanate, the ruler of which had a beautiful daughter, his only child and the very apple of his eye. Now this country had been plagued for several years by a terrible beast, a great white leopard, of a kind never seen before. So fearsome it was that it had killed hunters set to trap it, yet it was also so cunning that it had stolen babies from their very cradles as the mothers lay sleeping. The people of the Sultanate were all in fear, and the Sultan, whose best warriors had tried and failed to kill the beast, was driven to despair. Finally, at the end of his wits, he had it proclaimed in the marketplace that the man who could destroy the white leopard would be gifted with the Sultan's daughter, Rasoril, and with her the throne of the Sultanate after the old man was gone. Young Zufik heard how the best young men in the country, and others from countries beyond, one after the other had met their deaths beneath the claws of the leopard, or, or, in its jaws. Here I saw the boy falter, 
as if the vision of flashing teeth he was conjuring had suddenly reminded him of our predicament. Walid the under-vizier reached out and patted the lad's shoulder with great gentleness, until he was calm enough to resume. So, so young Prince Zufik took himself into that country, and soon was announced at the Sultan's court. The ruler was a tired old man, the fires in his sunken eyes long quenched. Much of the power seemed to have been handed over to a pale, narrow-faced youth named Sifaz, who was the princess's cousin. As Zufik announced his purpose, as so many had done before him, Sifaz's eyes flashed. You will no doubt meet the end all the others have, but you are welcome in the attempt, and the prize should you win. Then, for the first time, Zufik saw the princess Rasoril and in an instant his heart was overthrown. She had hair as black and shiny as polished jet, and a face upon which Allah himself must have looked in satisfaction, thinking, Here is the summit of my art. Her delicate hands were like tiny doves as they nested in her lap, and a man could fall into her brown eyes and drown without hope of rescue, which is what Zufik did, and he was not wrong when he thought he saw Rasoril return his ardent gaze. Sifaz saw, too, and his thin mouth turned into something like a smile, and he narrowed his yellow eyes. Take this princeling to his room, that he may sleep now and wake with the moon. The leopard's cry was heard around the palace walls last night. Indeed, when Zufik woke in the evening darkness, it was to hear the choking cry of the leopard beneath his very window. As he looked out, buckling on his scabbard, it was to see a white shape slipping in and out of the shadows in the garden below. He took also his dagger in his hand and leapt over the threshold. He had barely touched ground when, with a terrible snarl, the leopard bounded out of the obscurity of the hedged garden wall and came to a stop before him. It was huge, bigger than any leopard Zufik had seen or heard of, and its pelt gleamed like ivory. It leapt, claws flashing, and he could barely throw himself down in time as the beast passed over him like a cloud, touching him only with its hot breath. It turned and leapt again as the palace dog set up a terrible barking, and this time its talons raked his chest, knocking him tumbling. Blood started from his shirt, spouting so fiercely that he could scarcely draw himself to his feet. He was caught with his back against the garden wall. The leopard slowly moved toward him, yellow eyes like tallow lamps burning in the niches of hell. Suddenly there was a crashing at the far end of the garden. The dogs had broken down their stall and were even now speeding through the trees. The leopard hesitated. Zufik could almost see it thinking. And then with a last snarl it leapt onto the wall and disappeared into the night. Zufik was taken, his wounds bound, and he was put into his bed. The princess Rasoril, who had truly lost her heart to him, wept bitterly at his side, begging him to go back to his father's land and to give up that fatal challenge. But Zufik, weak as he was, would no more think of yielding than he would of theft or treason, and refused, saying he would hunt the beast again the following night. Sifaz grinned and led the princess away. Zufik thought he heard the pale cousin whistling as he went. In the dark before dawn, Zufik, who could not sleep owing to the pain of his injury, heard his door quietly open. He was astonished to see the princess come in, gesturing him to silence. 
When the door was closed, she threw herself down at his side and covered his hand and cheek with kisses, proclaiming her love for him and begging him again to go. He admitted his love for her, but reminded her that his honor would not permit him to stop short of his goal, even should he die in the trying. Rasoril, seeing that there was no changing the young prince's mind, then took from her robe a black arrow tipped in silver, fletched with the tail feathers of a falcon. Then take this, she said. The leopard is a magic beast, and you will never kill it otherwise. Only silver will pierce its heart. Take the arrow, and you may fulfill your oath. So saying, she slipped out of his room. The next night Zufik again heard the leopard's voice in the garden below, but this time he took also his bow and arrow when he went to meet it. At first he was loath to use it, since it seemed somehow unmanly. But when the beast had again given him injury, and he had struck three sword blows in turn without effect, he at last knocked the silver-pointed shaft on his bowstring, and, as the beast charged him once more, let fly. The black arrow struck to the leopard's heart. The creature gave a hideous cry and again leaped the fence, this time leaving a trail of its mortal blood behind it. When morning came, Zufik went to the sultan for men, so they could follow the trail of blood to the beast's lair and prove its death. The sultan was displeased when his vizier, the princess's pale cousin, did not answer his summons. As they were all going down into the garden, though, there came a great cry from the sleeping rooms upstairs, a cry like a soul in mortal agony. With fear in their hearts, Zufik, the sultan, and all the men rushed upstairs. There they found the missing Sifaz. The pale man lifted a shaking red-smeared finger to point at Zufik as all the company stared in horror. He has done it! The foreigner! Sifaz shouted. In Sifaz's arms lay the body of Princess Rasoril, a black arrow standing from her breast. After Fawn finished, there was a long silence. The boy, his own courage perhaps stirred by his story, seemed to sit straighter. Ah, the vampire said at last, love and its prices, that is the message? Or is it perhaps the effect of silver on the supernatural? Fear not, I am bound by no such conventions, and fear neither silver, steel, nor any other metal. The creature made a huffing, scraping sound that might have been a laugh. I marveled anew, even as I felt the skein of my life fraying, that it had so quickly gained such command of our unfamiliar tongue. Well, it said slowly, sad, but sad enough? Again, that is the important question. Who is your last contestant? Now my heart truly went cold within me, and I sat as though I had swallowed a stone. Walid al-Salama spoke up. I am, he said, and took a deep breath. I am. This is a true story, or so I was told. It happened in my grandfather's time, and he had it from someone who knew those involved. He told it to me as a cautionary tale. There was once an old caliph, a man of rare gifts and good fortune. He ruled a small country, but a wealthy one, a country upon which all the gifts of Allah had been showered in grand measure. 
He had the finest air a man could have, dutiful and courageous, beloved by the people almost as extravagantly as the caliph himself. He had many other fine sons, and two hundred beautiful wives, and an army of fighting men the envy of his neighbors. His treasury was stacked roof-beam high with gold and gemstones and blocks of fragrant sandalwood, crisscrossed with ivories and bolts of the finest cloth. His palace was built around a spring of fragrant clear water, and everyone said that they must be the very waters of life, so fortunate and well-loved this caliph was. His only sadness was that age had robbed his sight from him, leaving him blind, but hard as that was, it was a small price to pay for Allah's beneficence. One day the caliph was walking in his garden, smelling the exquisite fragrance of the blossoming orange trees. His son, the prince, unaware of his father's presence, was also in the garden, speaking with his mother, the caliph's first and chiefest wife. He is terribly old, the wife said. I cannot stand even to touch him any more. It is a horror to me. You are right, mother, the son replied, as the caliph hid behind the trees and listened, shocked. I am sickened by watching him sitting all day, drooling into his bowl or staggering sightless through the palace. But what are we to do? I have thought on it long and hard, the caliph's wife replied. We owe it to ourselves and those close to us to kill him. Kill him? the son replied. Well, it's hard for me, but I suppose you are right. I still feel some love for him, though. May we at least do it quickly, so that he shall not feel pain at the end. Very well, but do it soon, tonight even. If I must feel his foul breath upon me one more night, I will die myself. Tonight, then, the son agreed, and the two walked away, leaving the blind caliph shaking with rage and terror behind the orange trees. He could not see what sat on the garden path behind them, the object of their discussion, the wife's old lapdog, a scrofulous creature of extreme age. Thus the caliph went to his vizier, the only one he was sure he could trust in a world of suddenly traitorous sons and wives, and bade him to have the pair arrested and quickly beheaded. The vizier was shocked and asked the reason why, but the caliph only said he had unassailable proof that they intended to murder him and take his throne. He bade the vizier go and do the deed. The vizier did as he was directed, seizing the son and his mother quickly and quietly, then giving them over to the headsmen after tormenting them for confession and the names of confederates, neither of which were forthcoming. Sadly, the vizier went to the caliph and told him it was done, and the old man was satisfied. But soon, inevitably, word of what had happened spread, and the brothers of the heir began to murmur among themselves about their father's deed. Many thought him mad, since the dead pair's devotion to the caliph was common knowledge. Word of this discussion reached the caliph himself, and he began to fear for his life, terrified that his other sons meant to emulate their treasonous brother. He called the vizier to him and demanded the arrest of those sons and their beheading. The vizier argued in vain, risking his own life, but the caliph would not be swayed. At last the vizier went away, returning a week later a battered, shaken man. "'It is done, O prince,' he said. "'All your sons are dead.' 
The caliph had only a short while in which to feel safe before the extreme wrath of the wives over the slaughter of their children reached his ears. Destroy them, too, the blind caliph insisted. Again the vizier went away, soon to return. It is done, O prince, he reported. Your wives have been beheaded. Soon the courtiers were crying murder, and the caliph sent his vizier to see them dealt with as well. It is done, O prince, he assured the caliph. But the ruler now feared the angry townspeople, so he commanded his vizier to take the army and slaughter them. The vizier argued feebly, then went away. It is done, O prince, the caliph was told a month later. But now the caliph realized that with his heirs and wives gone, and the important men of the court dead, it was the soldiers themselves who were a threat to his power. He commanded his vizier to sow lies amongst them, causing them to fall out and slay each other, then locked himself in his room to safely outlast the conflict. After a month and a half the vizier knocked upon his door. It is done, O prince. For a moment the caliph was satisfied. All his enemies were dead, and he himself was locked in. No one could murder him or steal his treasure or usurp his throne. The only person yet alive who even knew where the caliph hid was his vizier. Blind, he groped about for the key with which he had locked himself in. Better first to remove the risk that someone might trick him into coming out. He pushed the key out beneath the door and told the vizier to throw it away somewhere it might never be found. When the vizier returned, he called him close to the locked portal that surrounded his small world of darkness and safety. Vizier, the caliph said through the keyhole, I command you to go and kill yourself, for you are the last one living who is a threat to me. Kill myself, my prince? the vizier asked, dumbfounded. Kill myself? Correct, the caliph said. Now go and do it. That is my command. There was a long silence. At last the vizier said, Very well. After that there was silence. For a long time the caliph sat in his blindness and exulted, for everyone he distrusted was gone. His faithful vizier had carried out all his orders, and now had killed himself. A sudden horrible thought came to him then. What if the vizier had not done what he had told him to do? What if instead he had made compact with the caliph's enemies and was only reporting false details when he told of their deaths? How was the caliph to know? He almost swooned with fright and anxiousness at the realization. At last he worked up the courage to feel his way across the locked room to the door. He put his ear to the keyhole and listened. He heard nothing but silence. He took a breath and then put his mouth to the hole. Vizier! he called in a shaky voice. Have you done what I commanded? Have you killed yourself? It is done, O prince, came the reply. Finishing his story, which was fully as dreadful as it was sad, the under-vizier Walid lowered his head, as if ashamed or exhausted. We waited tensely for our guest to speak. At the same time, I was sure we all vainly hoped there would be no more speaking, that the creature would simply vanish like a frightening dream that flees the sun. Rather than discuss the merits of your sad tales, 
the black tattered shadow said at last, confirming that there would be no waking from this dream. Rather than argue the game with only one set of moves completed, perhaps it is now time for me to speak. The night is still youthful, and my tale is not long, but I wish to give you a fair time to render judgment. As he spoke, the creature's eyes bloomed scarlet like unfolding roses. The mist curled up from the ground beyond the fire circle, wrapping the vampire in a cloak of writhing fogs, a rotted black egg in a bag of silken mesh. "'May I begin?' it asked, but no one could say a word. "'Very well. The tale I will tell is of a child, a child born of an ancient city on the banks of a river.' So long ago this was, that not only has the city itself long gone to dust, but the later cities built atop its ruins, tiny towns and great walled fortresses of stone, all those too have gone beneath the mill wheels of time, rendered, like their predecessor, into the finest particles to blow in the wind, silting the timeless river's banks. This child lived in a mud hut thatched with straw and played with his fellows in the shadows of the sluggish brown river while his mother washed the family's clothes and gossiped with her neighbors even this ancient city was built upon the bones of earlier cities and it was into the collapsed remnants of one a great tumbled mass of shattered sandstone that the child and his friends sometimes went and it was to these ruins that the child, when he was a little older, almost the age of our young romantic companion, took a pretty, doe-eyed girl. It was to be his first time beyond the veil, his initiation into the mysteries of women. His heart beat rapidly. The girl walked ahead of him, her slender brown body tiger-striped with light and shade as she walked among the broken pillars. Then she saw something and screamed. The child came running. The girl was nearly mad, weeping and pointing. He stopped in amazement, staring at the black, shriveled thing that lay on the ground, a twisted something that might have been a man once, wizened and black as a piece of leather dropped into the cook fire. Then the thing opened its eyes. The girl ran, choking, but he did not, seeing that the black thing could not move. The twitching of its mouth seemed that of someone trying to speak. He thought he heard a faint voice asking for help, begging for him to do something. He leaned down to the near silent hiss, and the thing squirmed and bit him, fastening its sharp teeth like barbed fish hooks into the muscle of his leg. The man-child screamed, helpless, and felt his blood running out into the horrible sucking mouth of the thing. Fetid saliva crept into the wounds and coursed hotly through his body, even as he struggled against his writhing attacker. The poison climbed through him, and it seemed he could feel his own heart flutter and die within his chest, delicate and hopeless as a broken bird. With final, desperate strength, the child pulled free. The black thing, mouth gaping, curled on itself and shuddered, like a beetle on a hot stone. A moment later it had crumbled into ashes and oily flakes. But it had caught me long enough to destroy me, for of course I was that child, to force its foul fluids into me, leeching my humanity and replacing it with the hideous, unwanted wine of immortality. 
My child's heart became an icy fist. Thus was I made what I am, at the hands of a dying vampire, which had been a creature like I am now. Worn down at last by the passing of millennia, it had chosen a host to receive its hideous malady, then died, as I shall do some day, no doubt, in the grip of some terrible, blind, insect-like urge. But not soon, not today. So that child, which had been in all ways like other children, loved by its family, loving in turn noise and games and sweetmeats, became a dark thing sickened by the burning light of the sun. Driven into the damp shadows beneath stones and the dusty gloom of abandoned places, then driven out again beneath the moon by an unshakable, irresistible hunger, I fed first on my family— my uncomprehending mother wept to see her child returned, standing by her moonlit pallet, then on the others of my city. Not last or least painful of my feedings was on the dark-haired girl who had run when I stayed behind. I slashed other throats, too, and lapped up warm, sea-salty blood, while the trapped child inside me cried without sound. It was as though I stood behind the screen, unable to leave or interfere, as terrible crimes were committed before me. And thus the years have passed, sand grains deposited along the river bank, uncountable in their succession. Every one has contained a seeming infinitude of killing, each one terrible despite their numbing similarity. Only the blood of mankind will properly feed me, and a hundred generations have known terror of me. Strong as I am, virtually immortal, unkillable as far as I know or can tell, blades pass through me like smoke, fire, water, poison, none affect me. Still the light of the sun causes a pain to me so excruciating that you with only mortal lives, whose pain at least eventually ends in death, cannot possibly comprehend it. Thus, kingdoms of men have risen and fallen to ashes since I last saw daylight. Think only on that for a moment, if you seek sad stories. I must be in darkness when the sun rises, so as I search for prey, my accommodations are shared with toads and slugs, bats and blind worms. People can be nothing to me any more but food. I know of none other like myself, save the dying creature who spawned me. The smell of my own corruption is in my nostrils always. So there is all of my tale. I cannot die until my time is come, and who can know when that is? Until then I will be alone, alone as no mere man can ever be, alone with my wretchedness and my evil and self-disgust, until the world collapses and is born anew. The vampire rose now, towering up like a black sail in the wind, spreading its vast arms or wings on either side, as if to sweep us before it. How do your stories compare to this? It cried. The harshness of its speech seemed somehow muted, even as it grew louder and louder. Whose is the saddest story, then? There was pain in that hideous voice that tore at even my fast-pounding heart. Whose is saddest? Tell me. It is time to judge. And in that moment, of all the moments when lying could save my life, I could not lie.
I turned my face away from the quivering black shadow, that thing of rags and red eyes. None of the others around the campfire spoke. Even Abdallah, the clerk, only sat hugging his knees, teeth chattering, eyes bulging with fear. I thought so, the thing said at last. I thought so. Night wind tossed the tree limbs above our heads, and it seemed as though beyond them stood only ultimate darkness. No sky, no stars, nothing but unending emptiness. Very well, the vampire said at last. Your silence speaks all. I have won. There was not even the slightest note of triumph in its voice. Give me my prize, for then I may let the rest of you flee my mountains. The dark shape withdrew a little way. We all of us turned to look at one another, and it was just as well that the night veiled our faces. I started to speak, but Ibn Fahad interrupted me, his voice a tortured rasp. Let there be no talk of volunteering. We will draw lots. That is the only way. Quickly, he cut a thin branch into five pieces, one of them shorter than the rest, and cupped them in a closed hand. Pick, he said. I will keep the last. As part of me wondered what madness it was that had left us wagering on storytelling and drawing lots for our lives, we each took a length from Ibn Fahad's fist. I kept my hand closed while the others selected, not wanting to hurry Allah towards his revelation of my fate. When all had selected, we extended our hands and opened them, palms up. Fawn had selected the short stick. Strangely, there was no sign of his awful fortune on his face. He showed no signs of grief. Indeed, he did not even respond to our helpless words and prayers, only stood up and slowly walked toward the huddled black shape at the far edge of the clearing. The vampire rose to meet him. No! came a sudden cry, and to our complete surprise the clerk Abdallah leapt to his feet and went pelting across the open space, throwing himself between the youth and the looming shadow. He is too young! Abdallah shouted, sounding truly anguished. Do not do this horrible thing! Take me instead! Ibn Fahad, the vizier, and I could only sit, struck dumb by this unexpected behavior— but the creature moved swiftly as a viper, smacking Abdallah to the ground with one flicking gesture. You are indeed mad, you short-lived men, the vampire hissed. This one would do nothing to save himself. Not once did I hear his voice raised in tale-telling. Yet now he would throw himself into the jaws of death for this other? Mad! The monster left Abdallah choking on the ground and turned to silent fawn. Come, you! I have won the contest, and you are the prize. I am sorry it must be this way. A great swath of darkness enveloped the youth, drawing him in. Come, the vampire said. Think of the better world you go to. That is what you believe in, is it not? Well, soon you shall... The creature broke off. Why do you look so strangely, man-child? the thing said at last, its voice troubled. You can cry, but I see no fear. Why? Are you not afraid of dying? Fawn answered. His tones were oddly distracted. Have you really lived so long? And alone, always alone? I told you, 
I have no reason to lie. Do you think to put me off with your strange questions? Ah, how could the good God be so unmerciful? The words were made of sighs. The dark shape that embraced him stiffened. Do you cry for me? For me? How can I help? the boy said. Even Allah must weep for you, for such a pitiful thing lost in the lonely darkness. For a moment the night air seemed to pulse. Then with a wrenching gasp, the creature flung the youth backwards so that he stumbled and fell before us, landing atop the groaning Abdallah. Go! the vampire shrieked, and its voice cracked and boomed like thunder. Get you gone from my mountains! Go! Amazed, we pulled Fawn and the chief clerk to their feet and went stumbling down the hillside, branches lashing at our faces and hands, expecting any moment to hear the rush of wings and feel cold breath on our necks. Build your houses well, little men, a voice howled like the wild wind behind us. My life is long, and someday I may regret letting you go. We ran and ran, until it seemed the life would flee our bodies, until our lungs burned and our feet blistered, and until the topmost sliver of the sun peered over the eastern summits. Mazrur Aladan allowed the tale's ending to hang in silence for a span of thirty heartbeats, then pushed his chair away from the table. We escaped through the mountains the next day, he said. Within a season we were back in Baghdad, the only survivors of the caravan to the Armenites. Ah, breathed young Hassan, a long, drawn-out sound full of wonder and apprehension. What a marvelous, terrifying adventure! I would never have survived it myself. How frightening! And did the... the creature... did he really say he might come back some day? Mazrur solemnly nodded his large head. Upon my soul, am I not right, Ibn Fahad, my old comrade? Ibn Fahad yielded a thin smile, seemingly of affirmation. Yes, Mazrur continued, those words chill me to this very day. Many is the night I have sat in this room looking at that door, he pointed, wondering if some day it may open to show me that terrible, misshapen black thing, come back from hell to make good on our wager. Merciful Allah, Hassan gasped. Abu Jamir leaned across the table as the other guests whispered excitedly. He wore a look of annoyance. Good Hassan, he snapped. Kindly calm yourself. We are all grateful to our host Mazrur for entertaining us, but it is an insult to sensible, godly men to suggest that at any moment some blood-drinking afrit may knock down the door and carry us... The door leapt open with a crash, revealing a hideous, twisted shape looming in the entrance, red splattered and trembling. The shrieking of Mazrur's guests filled the room. Master? The dark silhouette quavered. Baba held a wine jar balanced on one shoulder. The other had broken at his feet, splashing Abu Jamir's prize stock everywhere. Master, he began again, I am afraid I have dropped one. Mazrur looked down at Abu Jamir, who lay pitched full length on the floor, insensible. Ah, well, that's all right, Baba, Mazrur smiled, twirling his black mustache. We won't have to make the wine go so far as I thought. It seems my storytelling has put some of our guests to sleep.
And there you go. What a fine story. Mr. Tad Williams, thank you so much for letting Starship Sova play this. Don't forget, copyright is Tad Williams. Peter, what a great, great narration. As soon as I heard it, I was, yes, I was asking for more. And Peter is in the middle of doing Bruce Sterling's story as well, so do look out for that. So that is Starship Sova's Oral Delights 106. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support Starship Sova and keep getting stories and keep getting content like this, the old girl needs support. You can do that by monthly donations. If you want to join up to the sanatorium, that is where you get a private show by my good self, go over to the front of the website. Or if you don't even bother with that, just want to leave a donation, there you go. The, the option is there as well. Or if you want to get my book, Starship Sova's Volume 1. Please, by all means, do that. Everything in there is on the front of the website. So, as I sit back with my pina colada, my gentleman thong, <laughs> what a thought, what a sight that would be. Ho ho! I would just like to say, from a hopefully, hopefully, hopefully hot and balmy Cypress beach, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.